Okay, there are, um, for the last episode of the season, there are no dedications or anything. Um, what I would like to do is express a thank you to every well, my guests that came on to this season of the podcast. Uh, made it one of the best, and we continue to make it better. But thank you for all the people who have taken the time to come in my studio. Um, my show doesn't survive without good guests, and I've had fantastic guests to come on my show. And I'd like to send a thank you for Kyle for coming on and helping out uh, pitched on, uh, pitched in with uh, the movie reviews and all that fun stuff. So thank you, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Um Hopefully we can continue on doing this. This is a lot of fun. So uh, this is uh, St. Paul Filmcast host Nick saying thank you for all the people that came on my show. And um, hopefully, and thank you for Jay Ness and Jason Schumacher for guest hosting when I didn't have really have the time or anything to do it and they came <laughs> in to fill in. So um, look for the more guest hosting to come in next year as well. So yeah. everybody, thank you for listening and thank you for all my guests. Yeah, thank you all. All right, this is the end of the year, uh, last episode of the season podcast. I'm host Nick Palatichek. With me from Goat Film Reviews is... Kyle. Kyle Goethe's here. All right. (laughs) Um, We also have a YouTube show, uh, Kyle, Nick on Film. Today is our year in review of 2019. We are going to do some anticipation for 2020, but that's not going to be. That's going to be on the... That will be on January 6th. That's next Monday. But today... Today, we posted our episode for uh, The Rise of Skywalker, our non-spoiler review. Yeah. Um, just got online about an hour ago. So okay. get, give, it a, give it a watch, give it a listen. So if you want to um, stop now and listen to that. Yeah, learn where your pause button is because you can come <laughs> back to us then. Um, and you can also check out, too, the, the spoiler-filled talk that JNS Benenke and I did uh, last week. So I had a wonderful conversation with my father um, trying to clarify the difference between Rise of Skywalker and The Mandalorian. He's a little bit older. He's mm. a little beyond 60. <laughs> He's just, what are you talking about? I thought it was all one thing. Oh, oh yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yes, go back. If you want to push pause, we'll put the link up there. Check out. Um, so we're going to reflect back on this show. We're going to look forward on the YouTube channel. Yes. So, um, 2019, the year of the clown. So it, it, <laughs> chapter two, the Joker, very fitting for 2019. What is your general overall view of 2019 before we get into heavy details, Kyle? So 2019 for me was a year that started off like I was not finding a lot of films that really spoke to me. It was more like things that I thought were dumb that I kind of enjoyed, but like nothing that really leapt out at me. And and the first film that I would put on the list, and I'm not going to say what it is until we get to it, but uh, dropped in May. And it, in May, it just seemed like it started to steamroll into like such a tremendous year. Yeah. I like that 2019 is the year people swinging for the fences. We get a lot of films where people really go for broke. And sometimes it works really well, sometimes it doesn't, but I, I would rather see the risks and swinging for the fences than, than not. And I think we got a lot of that at the end of the year. I would highly agree that it took a long time to get his bearings. Mm-hmm. Um, really, I would say that one of the best, the, when we really got into good movies, when we got into great movies, probably around August. Yeah. So it, even in the, if you got your midterm, it was really scarce. Yeah, my middle, of, I, didn't, I didn't publish my top 10 of the first six months of 2019 because I didn't have like a, just a clear, like standout has to be at the top of the list. And I couldn't find 10 films that I truly felt belonged on that list. 
<laughs> now, I started this year, which uh, my first movie I watched of this year was The Vanishing with uh, Gerard Butler. Mm. And it was like a murder mystery, supposedly to, based on a true story. Oh, yeah. And then w- as soon as I got done with that, I knew there was another movie coming up called The Lighthouse. And I was mm-hmm. like, what are we, what are we with this? this, this? <laughs> and then I just got done watching Aquaman in 2018. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like lighthouses. What are we? What, what's up with the thing with lighthouses? But mm-hmm. you, you could tell a lot, a lot of with movies, there's a certain tone of catching one thing and then like a whole spurs of other movies do oh the yeah. Same. yeah both both in tone and in in overall like ambition yeah. um and i think i think we're seeing right now we're kind of seeing an influx where things are changing again you yeah. know that the previous few years are going to be very different than the next couple of years and i think that's getting a lot of new voices in the space too i would also you know i don't want to waste some time but i would say 2019 is far better than 2018 was i have more films that i struggled to put on my top 10 this year than any other year of this decade but uh, spoiler alert, you're not going to find any of my 2019 films on my top 10 of the decade, strangely enough. So they're all films that I think are tremendous, are great, and it might just come with the fact that I, I was a little bit harsher on this year because the other films have grown with me over time. Yeah. So talk to me again in 2029. I'll read you the list for you and tell you what's up. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking like things of like the movie The King on Netflix. I think mm-hmm. if it came out in 2018, we'd get some recognition, but it's just you're, you're in a crowded field here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, something like um, I really enjoyed because we had even had as a guest of Robert Kraskowski, the man who killed Hitler and then oh, Bigfoot. Yeah. And I, I like that movie, but mm-hmm. there's this, it's a crowded field here in 2019. Yeah, this is a very crowded year. Like, uh, I, And I think it, what's most interesting to me is if you watch, and I watch a lot of my favorite film pundits on uh, YouTube, yeah. all their top fives or top tens or top 15s virtually completely different from each other and completely different from mine. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and it's the year of Scarlett Johansson tying people's shoes. Yes, yes, we need more of that, I think. More of that. You know. No shoe tying, did she do it in Avengers? No shoe tying in that. No, but maybe we'll get a flashback or, or something something in Black Widow that can allude to some shoes. <laughs> right, she comes back in Black Widow, which is like, huh? All right, so overall, we're going to do the top 15. Um, it gets kind of hard to do a top 10, but we like we said, there's a bunch of movies, and it's a crowded field. I like to expand our because it might be a little bit similar to our list, but if once we get started, um, um, top 15 is a much better number than a top 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really happy that you allowed a top 15, because yeah. uh, on my website, and uh, I'll be pu- you know publishing this in a couple of days, my, I'll do my top 10 of, of written out, just because it's, you know, yeah. it's been something I've done for years, but I'm really happy I'll get a chance to talk to the other five, talk about the other five films on this list, because I kicked off some things that I'm really mad I kicked off. And the only reason <laughs> I'm going to do top 10 of the decade, mm-hmm. um, if you even want to kick off, yeah, is because it, it's just, you're going you're gonna to swallow a lot of time just coming up with even 50. Yeah. And I don't want to just, I mean, we could just do an episode of just movies of the decade. Yeah. But this is just a sample. I think if we do 10 movies for the decade, it's just a little drop of the water of what we're really appreciating. Yeah. And we're going to find then that we're going to have a lot of differences because thousands of movies came out over the last 10 years. So <laughs> right. I think like if we do have anything on the same list, it will be, it will be almost shocking. So. Okay. So how we're going to do this is simply we're going to list from 15 to one. I'm going to let Kyle start it with his number 15 of 2019. Kyle, what do you have? So I missed this film uh, for the first two months it was out, and I caught it pretty late in the game as it was leading the- leaving theaters, and I just okay. absolutely loved it. It stayed with me, and it's Alita Battle Angel. 
I think this, like what I mentioned earlier, swinging for the fences in 2019, Alita Battle Angel is one that I didn't think the trailers looked very good for. I wasn't all that excited about it. I knew about the source material, but I was like, this just doesn't seem like it's going to hit me. A friend forced me to go to the movie and I was blown away. I thought the visuals were amazing. I think everything in the film works really well uh, with the exception of uh, some, some villain cliche moments, I'll say. And I think the central relationship isn't as strong, but I think as a character, Alita is somebody that I would look to for strength uh, in, in this year. I think she was a fantastic character with a great partial CGI performance. Um, it simply was critics kind of panned on a big dissembling is the action movie with big eyes. Yep. Um, are we going to get a sequel to it? I, I don't think so because now it's owned by Disney and I think Alita will probably fall into the same thing as we saw with Tron Legacy where the film made money but Disney's only going to release so many films during the year and they need surefire hits. Um, I, I don't think we'll see anything in the Alita realm. We might see, I, I heard uh, from somebody who is close to uh, uh, a friend in uh, the city, or in LA basically, that said he heard things like Alita might be shopped around for a series. Uh, maybe Disney Plus. That might be a good avenue yeah. for it. I and mean, I don't know if it would be movie. like an animated thing or a live action thing because that's got to be a costly, costly series if it was live action. But I'd be interested in seeing more from the character. Um, it kind of reverse got me into the manga itself. And then uh, I just I want to see more from it because I think this for any of its faults that the film might have, it sets up a world that I really wanted to go back to. So, okay. yeah, number fifteen, Alita. And that was it was a midterm one because it uh, was out for a it, while. It dropped yeah in uh, in February, uh, and it was a push back yeah. from last year. Uh, it dropped in February and. I, I just had no interest in really seeing it. And I saw the reviews coming out were kind of muddling and I was like, okay, I've got too many other films that I feel are surefire hits to see. Yeah. And so I caught it pretty late in the, the first half of 2019. And I, I was really happy that I did though. And I wanted to go back to the theater and catch it, but it was probably the last week it was in theaters. So it did get a lot of, uh, I would say a lot of grassroots campaigning from people. Oh yeah. Not, not established film critics, but a lot of fans coming to really enjoyed it. Yeah. And it feels like, uh, this year also is a rarity for James Cameron in that he, you know, he produced two films that both didn't do very well comparatively. Like I've always yeah, believed never bet Terminator. against James Cameron, yeah, but I think this year was kind of a year that hurt him a little bit. Um, and you know, he didn't direct anything, but like the films he worked on and was a part of just didn't take off. I think the way he wanted. So, Hey, Terminator, uh, dark fate had the best car chase of the year. No, I missed it. I'm sorry, you like, <laughs> like car chases. You got, you I'll see you in January when you're on home video. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, number 15 uh, for me uh, is a documentary um, produced by Netflix, uh, American Factory, directed mm. by uh, Julia Reichert and Stephen Bornar. Shows the culture clashes of China and American. Um, it's basically General Motors closing down their plant near Dayton, Ohio, and a Chinese company coming in to bring back jobs in manufacturing uh glass for cars um and it doesn't really go all that smooth um you get a very in intense investigation of what it like is to work at a factory i used to work at a factory mm. for 10 years um and you see the woven complexities of navigating from management to lower level to upper and just the differences in the you want to succeed but there's some things that just are just undercurrent of throughout the film of people you know they're cutting my hours and my pay is done. There's a lot of lot of conflict here of even everybody wants to work well. I appreciate it. One of the best documentaries out there this year, American Factory. Yeah, American Factory for me was really a very hard watch. It because is. while I've never been in the factory life, I know a lot of people that have. I've grown up with people that are currently in it. And, you know, it can be a, it can be a demanding job physically 
even when it's at its best. And I think uh, looking at this film is kind of like, you know, who, who are our saviors, you know, kind of, ju- you know, looking back at who are the people that save us and, and can they continue to save us? And uh, it's, I think, the first film from Barack and Michelle Obama's production They're company. They're one of the producers, yeah. Um, They're a production company, yeah. Yeah, so I, I kind of laughed when I saw it on his best films of the year list. Where I was like, <laughs> okay, come on now. Um, but uh, it's really great. If you watch yeah. it on Netflix, I would also stay around and watch, like, I think there's like a 15 to 30 minute uh, sit down chat with the directors and the Obamas where they kind of cover the film. Yeah. Um, and how they you know conceived of it and I think it's a really cool little after special so stick around after the credits if you watch it I mean they're selling it as a political difference but I think it's cultural difference oh it's, it's a far culture more clash yeah, in how, every way yeah. how more far casual we are as a society than is in even yeah. China you know it starts yeah. out kind of highlighting one culture over the other and then kind of twists a little bit and highlights you know the other culture and this not, time and not, it's not demonization of either no, side it's, it's, it's more a, just to two groups looking at how the other one is different. And there are things that we do right in our culture as far as treating our work workers. Yeah. And there are things that we do very wrong. And I think this film uses a foreign culture to view ours. Yeah. And in a way we kind of walk away knowing a lot more about both. It was really eye opening for me. Yeah, it was really, really done well. Um, there's going to definitely be some more coming up in my list. Uh, I also uh, want to add it. Um, if you want to check out my 16 through 25, I posted on the social media um, ones. I'm not going to talk about. There's just we don't have the time and everything. But uh, definitely my 16 through 25. If Kyle wants to share his 16 through 25, also we'll put oh, them we'll up together. Yeah, I'll find them. <laughs> You'll definitely find them in his. I'll go find right. them in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so number 14 for me yeah, uh, is yeah. a film that I had so much fun. I was at a press screening, and I don't know if I've seen press at a screening as. Uh, jovial as I saw them this year when I saw Ready or Not. Uh, it is a horror film uh, starring Samara Weaving. It's Blum, uh, Bloomhouse, right? Blumhouse? I believe so. Um, yeah. I know I know it was picked up now. Now it's a Disney property of all things, of course. Yeah. Um, but it, Samara Weaving plays a woman who's getting who's having her wedding day. And uh, <laughs> at the end of the night, she finds out, in order to properly be a part of our family, our gaming dynasty, you have to play a game with us on your wedding night before yeah, anything like else a, happens. It could be like a board game or any. Yeah, yeah she draws out of it hide and seek. But she doesn't realize this isn't just normal hide and seek. This is hide and seek, but everyone who's hunting you has weapons. <laughs> and I thought it was brilliant and it was so much fun. I, I yeah. haven't seen a film that I was like so excited to watch. I was enjoying myself. I was scared. I was tense. I was just invested wholeheartedly in the character. And it's one of those films where I don't think any of the characters are really that good of people. But, you know, even even our main character is not no, it, a particularly it, the, nice person. Even the characters, even the performances are not driving this. I think the concept and the environment, and yeah. how it's played out. And if really? you guys follow me on social media, I've been pushing for a ready or not follow up in which th- that it's the entire same movie for the first 15 minutes. But yeah. she draws a different card, not a sequel so much, but just like a universe where she draws a different game every movie and they'd find like a, a unique spin on it. I don't know exactly how it could be done, but I just think like that would be such a unique way to build a franchise where they're not even really connected films. They're just the same cast. But they draw a different card. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how you're going to have to do it. It's almost yeah. like a it's almost like a variation of a clue. It, th- yeah, it's kind of like multiple it, endings, almost, yeah. if you will. Um, when I saw it, and I was binge moving when I saw it. I actually thought it was Margaret Robbie. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I had people that said Margot Robbie, and I thought I saw Emma Stone. So I don't like. 
everyone sees someone different. Um, <laughs> I had to check back and I was like, no, that's not her. And I thought that was her in the trailers. I yeah, think. so Samara Weaving, uh, she's kind of skirted. Uh, I, some, some people will know her, but she's kind of skirted by, she was in a Netflix film called The Babysitter a year okay. or two ago where um, they kind of turned the babysitter mythos on its head. And it's a really like fun, kind of don't take it too seriously little horror film. Uh, and she also, well, I believe she's going to be, oh yeah. And yeah. I believe she's going to be in uh, Bill and Ted 3 next year. She's playing one of the daughters of one of the two of them. I don't know which one. I, th- I saw uh, her in one of the photos that came out, but I'm excited. I think she's a she's a solid, fun actress to watch, and I'd, I'd like to see what she does next. So I did like uh, Ready or Not. It had the right temperament for it. Mm-hmm. The, the the ridiculousness, and we're having fun. You could tell, you know, probably take tw- after cut. They're having. They're probably just. Oh yeah, that sounds. Up, yeah. That seems like it would have been a party. Um, on set. it looked like a fun <laughs> dinner party to go yeah. to. I mean, it looked like everything was. A, it just sold it perfectly. Mm-hmm. That's not taking itself serious, and you can have a little bit of you know your gore. You know, and I did like the ending for it. it was, oh yeah, yeah, the ending it's, was perfect. The ending you almost expect in a way, but it it works exactly right. yeah, as yeah. well as it's supposed to. The whole time you're wondering, like, are you going to do it that way? Or are you yeah. Not? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, number fourteen for me uh, comes from Colombia. Manos, directed by Alejandro Landes. Uh, this is the official submission for the Academy Award. Manos. Um, basically, it's a bunch of kids in the, in the woods who were protecting. Uh, the, their their native country you don't get a lot of detail mm-hmm. I don't think there's a lot of script to this but the cinematography was very effective it's almost becomes the the environment becomes the story mm-hmm. it's simply kids who are militant trained to protect their side of their village for we don't know from what mm. they come in and get trained um, a lot of people are selling this as Lorifies meets apocalypse now it does escalate there's basically a cut of two stages to this but I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Mm. I did not get a chance to see it. I I uh, saw a trailer for it though. In the trailer, yeah, as far as cinematography, even in a trailer goes, I thought it looked really yeah. beautiful. Um, not to be confused with Mano's Hands of Fate. This is a completely <laughs> different film. I was confused when I first heard the title, but um, it's it's definitely it looked it looks gorgeous, and I I could get those Lord of the Flies vibes from the film just right. from the trailer. Um, yeah, wanted to catch it, didn't catch it. Too busy. There's a lot of freedom. There's a. It doesn't really look tight scripted. There's a lot of. It looks like a lot of play with this. Oh, okay. Um, and you see the kids managing their lives, and it doesn't really go well. And you know, like they're, they're violent to each other. Then it's almost like we're kidding. Very juvenile, and it presents like over. It's like battling for war is juvenile too. But then it gets. It goes way off on the end. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, very one of the more realistic violent scenes at the end. I recommend it. Manos actually is, you know, Germanic for uh, Slava or Germ- Greek. I'm sorry. One, right? So a collective mm. of ones. And then it's also, I think, Spanish for monkey. And mm. I think they really use that word for these kids are on their own, even though they're a group, but they're early on their own only for themselves. And they're in the jungle. Yeah, Only like the you wild. can play with the duality of one then, yeah, like the, the common I, one, like we are yes. all one or we are all separate ones. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of an all for one, one for all kind of a situation then. So when I'm trying to get around, it's very it looks very organic how it developed, mm. and that's one of the more, most refreshing things. It doesn't look like a type script. It just looks like it's organically developed. All right, the kids picked this guy as the leader because it just showed that that's what he wants and everything. So it's a nice develop, very refreshing. Manos mm. from Colombia. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, number 13 for me, I'm, I'm rocking my, my Chris Evans sweater for my number 13 choice. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm Chris Evans. I'm just saying no one has ever seen me and Chris Evans in the same room. We'll take a picture. Um, yeah, we, so we'll, uh, yeah. my number 13 is Knives Out. 
yeah. uh, from Ryan Johnson. I am a huge Last Jedi fan. I don't care if you don't like it. Um, and I have been such a fan of Ryan Johnson's work, even the stuff like I was not a huge fan of Looper, but I, th I thought again, like he did everything he could for it. The film just didn't work for me. Uh, Knives Out for me though is a perfect Agatha Christie style murder yes. mystery. And I love the fact that it's, it's got constantly peeled away layers. Uh, you think, you know, the whole story about 25, 30 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And then about an hour in, you think, you know, the whole story again. And then finally you get to the end of the film and you are still not entirely sure that you've got that last layer, even when the end credits are rolling. Um, I thought it's a great send up. There's some really gorgeous production design, the set, this house agree, that the film yes. is set in. I could just live there. I <laughs> want to go there and just read books one weekend. Um, and then this kind of a film like Agatha Christie style murder mystery doesn't work if you don't have a phenomenal cast, like the one that you have in this movie. There are people in this movie that I want to just again like spend time with watching them be terrible to each other yeah <laughs> but i think every single character and every single performer match each other so well this is another one i know i keep talking about making sequels with my top 15 here i want benoit blanc back again for another mystery i am yes. so yeah. all for I daniel craig's continuing uh mystery murder mystery lifestyle like just throw me another character story with him so this is Ryan Johnson going back to what he's familiar with. This kind of his natural environment of uh, working with murder mysteries he did when he broke out with Brick, Brick which yeah. is kind of a noir in college or noir in high school. Mm -hmm. um, but this is what his kind of his his template. He likes to dangle. Do you think you know what's going on? Not necessarily know what is going on. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a heavily, heavily filled murder mystery mm -hmm. i think it's well done yeah um there are a bunch of literary devices you got a coffee cup it's bookend by a coffee cup. oh i know i just <laughs> want to i want to watch it again and again just so i can see all the things i didn't see before that's my favorite kind yeah. of mystery is when you can see it again and be like oh why was i not thinking of that when i saw it yes it does have that flavor where i think it's better if you watch it the second time mm -hmm. yeah and it's a whole foreshadowing i it very well done probably it's going to get nominated for best original screenplay yeah. yeah, this one might have a bit of an uphill battle to get Best Picture nomination, but I think there's a lot of elements to it that should get at least a little bit storyline-wise. Um, production design, I could see it getting something. Yeah. Um, perhaps even cinematography. There's a really lovely usage of of this set in a, in a visual sense, especially yeah. that wall of knives. I, it's just, it's one of the most interesting set pieces I've ever seen. Yeah, we always talk about uh, with movies, we like to see something new, and that was I mean, it plays with the light, and it's a wonderful craftsmanship of using the light in the whole movie and the knives and play with knives. And oh, yeah. And knives out of everybody scratching and crawling to get to each other. Oh, yeah. yeah. And my, my favorite thing about it is when I started to poke holes in the narrative and then they presented me like almost instantly when I was like trying to poke a hole in the narrative, they presented me with a wrinkle where I'm like, oh, that does make sense then. Oh, darn. Like I was almost trying to find flaws with this, yeah. this caper and it just it's so tightly constructed that I just I have to look up it, up to it with like admiration. I'm just I'm so proud of it. <laughs> this is a fascinating because we're so used to Michael Shannon being a hard, brooding, brutish person. Mm -hmm. um, even uh, even like in Superman or something like that. And Tony Collette playing uh, the meanest mom, and they're just a bunch of softies. That, yeah, yeah, they they kind of play yeah. against type really well. Like, yes, and again, like was, yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis is not someone who I find a like a, a mean fierceness to but, but she, she she's just kind of cold-hearted and mean and she has yeah. it she has it with all like there's in a way you love her because she stands for what she believes in but in another way you're like i don't want to 
I don't want to face off against you in a battle. Yeah. Like, and I think, yeah, Michael Shannon, we always see him grim and gruff and he even kind of has a gruffness to himself visually in the on film. camera. Right? And then he yeah. opens his mouth and you're like, this is not the guy I thought he was. So I uh, supposedly, I think uh, it's been well, it's like an open secret of Michael Shannon being the biggest jokester on set on, on film and everything. Mm -hmm. And Chris Evans put on Twitter, how thanks for letting me be the funniest guy on set. And Michael Shannon just, what are you, the hell are you talking? Yeah. About? <laughs> <laughs> you weren't even close. Yeah. I had this down. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Okay. Number 13 for me came from France, uh, kicked around the film festivals, but was released. I've talked about it with left with people. It's number 13, uh, directed by Gaspar Noir, who is a very, Acute taste. He's not for the mass consumption. Climax. Um, simply, it's a whirlwind of dance horror, of explosive nightmare. It's fame meets scream. Um, I think if you like the long taste of MGM dance, of modernized of this day, you would appreciate the beginning. It has the best film intro, my, my opinion, best film intro of the year, where you just get an explosive of just choreographed dance that's just mighty impressive. Mm. This is a filmmaker who you love him or you hate him. And I don't think you always love him or hate him at the same time. I think every one of his films is, is so polarizing. Yes. Uh, and, he, and, and in that way, that way, he's yeah. never boring. I'll give him that. Um, <laughs> but for me, uh, Climax, again, is one that just kind of skated past me. And, you know, at home, there's a stack of movies that I want to get to. And about two from the top is Climax. So um, I picked it up on your recommendation, actually, uh, earlier okay. this month. I, I would was, like to I was hear pretty excited yeah. to check it out. But, you know, the weekend just gets ahead of you and you try to catch all the films you can and i the moment i knew i was coming on the show i was like i gotta try and watch as many films as possible this weekend anything i might have missed and i went through a ton of them and just climax sat there still <laughs> what i like about it is he does he really forces long takes mm -hmm. to almost where the audience is a little more impatient with it and I think he wants to hold it as a refresh of just let's stay with it and that can be irritating with some people yeah, I think he has. This is gonna sound mean. I'm not. I'm not trying to be mean about him. I think yeah. he, he has more enemies than friends when it comes to like people watching. <laughs> I think his he films. wants it that way too. Yeah, yeah. And I think I he's think, fine yeah. with that. He yeah. makes films for uh, for people that want to be tested, <laughs> and I think he does test pretty well. I I still remember remember seeing pieces of Enter the Void and going like, what is what, what is, is going yeah. on here? Or it's hard um, to digest or reversible. Yeah, and in mind. that way, I think yeah. from what I've heard from a lot of people, Climax is, is his most accessible film I in agree. recent years, Yeah, um, which might suggest a bit of a change for him. Maybe we're going to see something kind of unique, you know, if he's transitioning to maybe a more accessible director in some ways. Maybe he has, you know, he wants to kind of like create the bridge. Yeah, that's why I almost want to put an asterisk. He's not for mass consumption. Yeah. Uh, this is somebody who really forces you to watch. It's just not something that you can just, it's for strictly entertainment. He really wants to challenge what it is to watch a movie. Yes, especially, you know, if you have Netflix and you confuse the Netflix original series love with his movie love, um, <laughs> you're going to, you're you going to be, do that. I didn't do that. Okay, no, but right. I heard from someone who did. And it's right. like, you are in for quite a shock. Um, so, yeah, Climax. I'm interested. I want to catch that maybe this week. Wonderful. All right. All right. Um, number 12 on Kyle from Gold Film Reviews. Number 12 from the year. So this next film is one that is my favorite of its cinematic universe. Uh, and it's it's still pretty young. But number 12 for me is Shazam. Uh, the that DC is a big film surprise. from April. 
I again uh, you, was you not impressed with most of the uh, most of the trailers, most of the information coming out about the film. Yeah. Um, and I've always been kind of like hit or miss. Like I've always supported the DC franchise, yeah. especially the cinematic universe thing. I think they've struggled a lot in trying to get to an MCU level too early. Just make your films, you know, have them be what they are. And I think Shazam is the perfect epitome of getting a solid filmmaker who has a vision, bringing him in with a, a an actor that fits the role perfectly, and you just have that tone that just strikes gold. Shazam is yeah. endlessly rewatchable. Well, and it's I, also, it's, it's such a character piece about the main character. It's this kid who's lost, who's looking for one thing in his life. He's not, he, he believes that this, finding this one thing is going to fix all of his problems. I know that's not like a kid's mentality, close. right? Yeah, yeah, it's nothing close to what he actually wants. Yeah. It's it's a film that makes you feel like a child again, uh, as much if not more than Big, which is where it takes a lot of its inspiration oh, from. Yes, I think it definitely does. Yeah. Um, you get a horror filmmaker that comes in <laughs> after Lights Out and Annabelle Creation, and he does. Uh, a movie that you what I love about DC is they always bring in horror filmmakers and they're like we're going to give you one moment one scary moment and right I, I think we know yeah, the, the board directors move yeah but yeah. Uh, it's just such a fun movie I mean I would say I can't really find a problem with the film I really want to see them return to it and I think if I were to if, if you were to say pick any of these seven DCEU films which one would you watch right now I'd grab Shazam even if I just watched it so, a lot of, especially with Shazam, uh, what really carries a movie is kids. Yeah, they really convince you with the acting. And the kids, know, and really, they're I mean, all the perfect. Whole, yeah. They're all so good. And and I think you find uh, you know Zachary Levi, who I was a big fan of on Chuck. I'm a huge fan of Chuck. I was yeah. shepherding that show even when Subway saved it from cancellation. Uh, Chuck was such a great show, and it was led by Zachary Levi, who would not the show would not have survived without his leading. Um, as the character he's a likable person there and you see a lot of that in Shazam he's a child in an adult's body I don't care that the suit looks like it might be made out of pillows I don't care like because <laughs> um, it's just such an enjoyable experience that really embraces some of the more weird aspects of the DC yep. like world but they do it in a relatable way and I think a more successful way than any DC film has I, I liked it. it was refreshing that you get a little bit of a kid right mm -hmm. it's kid friendly but there's some serious stuff to this um there's some dark overtone but you're right the theme and the tone don't have to be both dark and the tone is kind of dark but the theme is kind of light there's some and it, bright stuff into it it reminds me a lot of in ways of you know older films that were geared towards younger audiences still because i yeah. think shazam still is kind of geared towards younger or, or the more family friendly fare yeah but Kids are smarter than we give them credit for. They can accept things that are a little darker. They can accept things a little more frightening. We were I was just listening to a podcast where we talked about the horror aspects of of Star Wars. And they're like, there's some Star Wars stuff that's super dark. Oh, and yeah. and kids yeah. love that stuff. Um I, that's what got me into those kinds of things growing up. I was I was the kid who would be like your your monster squad, your, you know, American Werewolf in London kid who was like watching all the dark movies. And I think Shazam embraces that a little bit and they they pose uh difficult questions that I, I think, think really work. And it what works for them is the bad guys are really have a logical explanation of why they're upset. You give all this power to a kid. Mm -hmm. And that really irritates all when you can we can see it eventually where they do the sequel with Black Adam. Black Adam and, and then yeah. four months later we're getting our Shazam too. So like they're they're pushing for it pretty hard. And I believe yeah, I believe that's exactly correct is you've got uh our, our mystical villains who have a who have a need and a purpose. Yeah. And yeah, they're 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 wrote in some ways where they like really you know, they want what they want because they are made to want this. But then you get someone like Dr. Savannah. 
who's you know he was I was gonna be Shazam when I was a kid right but you get this whole I wasn't yeah. ready for it and instead of you know like moving on instead of learning from it and trying to become a better person he takes the wrong path you know and I think that's kind of an interesting uh, duality between the two characters and how it really works well in the film. Number 12 for you is Shazam. Shazam. Okay, number 12 for me uh, was probably what I regarded in August as the first great movie I got to see of the year as directed by Christian Petzl. I've been a huge fan of him uh, a while back. Uh, his film Phoenix I regarded as the best movie of the year at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the third movie, what he would call his tripic. He titles um, Love in a Time of Oppressive System Trilogy. So it's a third one of this. It, they're, not gold, they're not linear. They're just three different movies. The first one was Barbara. Um, the second one was Phoenix, and this one is Transit. Mm. Uh, Transit is uh, pretty much you subtract time out of it, and it's um, a suppressive government taking over and rounding up the suspects. And um, he's definitely one. He's fleeing the oppressive state. Um, you get some modern and old mixture, so you don't really know what time it is, and that, that's not one that's important. It's, it's trying to show you that this can happen at any time. That time is irrelevant. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a style that's been used before: is remove time from the equation and show that this can happen a hundred years ago, can happen today, can happen a hundred years from now. Like, yeah, that's a really interesting. Yeah, I uh, transit for me looks it looks just gorgeous. It looks epic. It, you know, it kind of has that like it does. It's really super it's kind gorgeous. Of, yeah, like and and you're looking at the film. I I watching the trailer for it i didn't really feel like it looked pretty but it, it's it's well uh shot you know it's yeah. just not like not a very happy looking <laughs> no well, well a lot of beautiful things happen around but mm-hmm. it's just underwhelming foreboding that did you know eventually this is not just gonna this is eventually just gonna he's chasing away but eventually it's gonna get caught up to him mm-hmm. um george along the way as a character um played by franz i can't remember his name franz uh, rogowski mm has a right face for this movie of just <laughs> foreboding but he fills in other um fills in for other people so he's for other people he's a dad for other people he's an author so it's almost like he's losing his identity as he's fleeing oppressive states mm. and he's just filling in for what people other need so it's a transition for not only of how the whole world's going but it's a transition of him as well mm. and then not only then being caught might be of good so because you're losing your identity you're losing yourself as you're trying to flee mm. is escape yeah um i would say it's not so much that going to hell is the worst thing but waiting to go to hell <laughs> purgatory is not so great either <laughs> yeah, you know eventually you're going to get caught mm. uh, no matter what you do and you may don't want to fall in love because it's going to be more painful transit Probably one of the, the first great movie I saw of the year. Never went, never left my list. Mm. But, uh, it's interesting how you say, yeah, like the you know you're going to get caught. You know things are going to end poorly. Reminds yeah. me a lot of one of my honorable mentions this year, which was Queen and Slim. And it's kind of a film where you just you know the whole time like this is not going to end the way we want it. They're to, constant it? fleeting. Yeah. They're escaping, but you know that eventually it's going to catch up to and them. That's a tough yeah. thing to accomplish at the end of a film is to give give people exactly what they expect in the worst possible way. So. It's done many times before with like the mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde with Warren yeah. uh, Beatty, uh, Easy Rider, that their freedom is eventually is just not going to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as far as this. Uh, this yeah not not trilogy trilogy so there is no interconnectedness between it or no um so christian petzl and i think it's his time to come out and become one of the major film directors uh with barbara here is a person that is going to stay in a repressive state because of love mm. in phoenix it's um the woman is sent to the uh, concentration camps mm. 
uh, where she's marked up and she's going to try to, after the war is over, she's going to try to find out who turned her in. It could have been her husband. Mm. It could have been somebody. And she goes on an investigation to find out who turned her in. Um, so it's a little bit of mystery. In transit, it's just a constant fleeting of you're not going to win. Mm. Real lighthearted affair. Huh? <laughs> Christian is very much heavy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right, so we're getting to the tens. So number eleven, what what did did not quite make it to ten? Oh, number for you. eleven. Oh man, I really wanted to keep this one in there because I okay. think uh, when you can showcase something incredibly gruesome, incredibly gory, and do it in a beautiful way, I think that's a real accomplishment. And I think no film hits gory, bloody action in a beautiful way like John Wick Chapter Three, which came out this oh, year. I wonderful. wanted this in my top ten wonderful. so bad, and yeah. it just got booted out at the end. I'm sorry, Keanu. I'll win you back <laughs> later. Um, this was the year of Keanu. He just he wanted everything he did. Um, you know, and always be my maybe in Toy Story Four. Uh, maybe not replicas that came out in January. Let's just forget that one. But um, nah. yeah, John Wick Chapter Three takes everything that was good about the first two films, yeah. removes everything that was bad, and there's not a lot bad, but it really like siphons out the pulp of what this this trilogy was leading to seriously my only flaw with this film is that i really wanted it to have somewhat more of an ending than it did to not just be an ending that sets me up for another film the third movie um, has tough time with the ending yep you've just got to get give me an ending so that if you chose never to make one again that i'd be okay with it i'm really happy we're getting a fourth one but i think like this third film for me uh does what i wanted a third film to do expand the world expand the mythology and top yourself. If you're doing an excessive violent film, top yourself. And yeah, I think... Uh, which is the challenge. Yeah, which is always going to be a challenge. And especially yeah. when you have the same filmmakers and the same writers continually returning to the well, eventually you're going to run out of water. So when it comes time for Parabellum, this third chapter to open up, we get this library fight right at the beginning of the film that just yeah. goes, okay, we've topped it. Let's keep going. Um, I love that it's... Which, which is nice about when you do the third... You don't need to spend time on the introduction. Yeah. We, we know that. The best yeah. part of it is that it, it opens up minutes after the second film ends. We now... You know, we have our running our time clock of like, this is about to get really bad soon. And they're just <laughs> calling it out every few minutes. And I love... I love that, yeah. that... Like, for me, that was the most tense part of the film was that first, you know, half hour as he's preparing for the onslaught that's about to come. And they find a way to believably make uh, John Wick as a character human, but then also, you know, superhuman. make him superhuman in ways. Yeah. And I think every set piece is shot so beautifully that it's, it's their works of art peppered with blood and guts and gore. And I think, again, one of the most fun times I've had at the theater, a lot of these like bottom of the 15 have been like just joyful theater experiences. Um, I saw this one actually two times in the same day. <laughs> if you can remember who, who started the franchise, who written the franchise, can you remember offhand? Oh gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on who wrote it. Uh, I know that the directors were ones who had worked with uh, uh, Keanu on the Matrix films yeah. as stunt choreographers, uh, eventually went on. And then David Leach, who helped, who directed the first one, co-directed it, but didn't get the credit for, went on to do films like Deadpool 2. Uh, he did... Uh, if you want to just find it, the only reason I talk about it is mm -hmm. because this is a person who wrote a script and he just sent it to Keanu's agent yeah thinking okay and then you know Keanu says I have a stack of scripts and I really want to do this movie 
and the guy, and the guy is an avid yeah. writer. I've listened to a podcast where he's been, he's this constant writing. He does spends five hours a day just writing, um, and he loves the process of writing. I don't know if he liked the process of filmmaking, yeah, but exactly. um, he was actually just completely stepped back. That uh, Keanu Reeves was like, what? Yeah. I, I read a hundred scripts and I really want to make this. And Keanu's one of the people that I, I can see this as a franchise that we can turn this into a mythos. Yeah. So it was actually, you know, even though Keanu stars in it, it really was him to be in the driving force of this whole development. Yeah. And he evolution believed in it and he movie. found, he found something in it that he could do. I think Keanu Reeves is at his best when he understands what his strengths and weaknesses are. Oh yeah. You know, he is, he's a, a character actor in a lot of ways that when he finds the right character he can dive in and really open things up you just shot you know? one that's going to be in my top five another person that if he finds the right material can really shine yeah just like he gets it and, and i think that's at his best is when he when he gets it and embraces it so yeah yeah, yeah. all right we're on number 11 mm-hmm. oh my gosh we're almost to the tens all right number uh, 11 for me was a movie just came out a couple weeks ago i was really fascinated with it i had some reservations for it but i came away muddy impressed um sadafi brothers uncut gems with adam sandler i think i'm seeing that this afternoon (laughs) (laughs) if you've seen uh good time with Mm -hmm. robert pattinson uh, i think one of the brothers is actually plays the robert his brother yeah yeah um if you know what how good time is Uncut Gems is just like that. Mm. Um, Adam Sandler, perfect, great material for him. I'm really appreciate. I was shocked. I'm mean, people saying go see this movie because of him, and it's like really um, have a reservations. I was mighty impressed with his performance. Mm-hmm. It was outstanding. Where would you rank this performance in the Adam Sandler, you know, canon of performances? Like I would, I would pull things like. Uh, Spanglish, uh, Punch Drunk Love, yeah. or uh, Rain Over Me as like his more deeply personal films. I also thought yeah. he was really good in Funny People with his emotional arc in that film, uh, more so than even his comedy. Where would you rank Uncut Gems? This there? is his best one. You think it's his best, best this, performance? He's able to do all of it. He's able to be the loud character, the soft character, the funny, the awkward, the pathetic, mm. the great. This is a, one of those that everybody gets nominated when they can do and they do it right. Yep. Um, the whole movie is all about him, but you get this emphasis that is a cosmic um, you know the Sadafis like to pull that that no matter we're focusing a little piece of the world that a lot of stuff is playing out cosmetically and um, the metaphor of rocks and how it's a rock and the basketball and all that stuff Hmm. Um, addiction there you go this is something that even when I I want to see it with people in the audience there's a certain part of the movie where it goes and you're like, oh my God, what is wrong with you? And people in the theater are like, you can't, you gotta be serious. People There's a point in the movie where they're just like, you, this is, this is somebody who actually feeds on stress. And I think if, if he didn't have stress, we won't know, won't not know what to do with his life. Wow. Howard Ratner is his uh, character's name and it's one of the best characters of the decade. Yeah. It is just fascinating. Unrelated, whenever I watch that trailer, whenever it shows up in the theater for me, like my dad's name is Howard. So when people just yell his name, I'm like, I'm like, I just put this like weird connection. My dad is not going to be like him. But in my head, it just that's where my head goes. It's like it brings that out there, too. Um, yeah. The Safdie brothers just give give them more stuff because I think they are fantastic i i do wonder if they were put into a more confined studio system that they i think they like i don't this, I, but i almost don't know if it worries me that like they have such a voice that yeah. keeping them in like the a24 world is the right thing to do and if you can go back to good time they like that 
claustrophobic, that closed environment. I mean, even in the scene oh, yeah. of Robert Patterson and the brother in the bathroom, um, the interrogation. With good time, yeah. I don't think I've ever yelled at a character more under my breath in the middle of a theater. Like, I really didn't want to ruin the experience for other people, but I just wanted to get up and be like, change your life, man. <laughs> Um, You're going to do that definitely with Uncut Gems. So okay. People who have listened to that understand why we were screaming at the theater. Like, why are you doing this? I will stuff? have to get a screening with like one or two people and then like apologize before it starts. Um, fun thing too about Uncut Gems, it's got A24's highest uh, grossing day on Christmas yeah. Day, which is interesting. It's not a film I would have thought to go to on Christmas Day. But. The trailer <laughs> is nothing like the movie. Hmm. And I find that very refreshing. That's it what trailers should it's, be. It's an, I mean... Obviously, you have Kevin Garnett, and you want to plug that as somebody in you know, Adam Sandler because it doesn't have a lot of stars in it. I mean, mm-hmm. Judd Hirsch is in there. But you want to plug that this is a nice teaser. Um, I, I think the Sadafi brothers have a look at a feel and a style, and they stick with it. Hmm. So definitely number 11 for me, Uncut Gems. Wow, perfect. Man, I'm just making so many good lists. Um, well, before you get to the top 10, mm-hmm. I would like to take a little break. Oh, sure. Um, and then uh, we get to the meat of the whole movies and stuff like that. So um, before Kyle gets started, um, we get to the top 10. Here, I will take a little break. Hey, everyone. Brian Thomas here from the former The Batman versus James Bond show and the upcoming The Night Cave show. Do you like noir, black and white, gritty murder mysteries? Do you like crime stories or even pulp comics? Then you're going to love Nick Palatichuk's debut graphic novel entitled The Greenway. It's 1968, and Butch Schultz, a black market merchant, finds that his friend has been murdered in a mansion in St. Paul. Now he is out looking for who did it, while the city's best detectives are on the case. Nick's graphic novel is already getting rave reviews, let me tell you. Zero Supervision Comics Podcast says, a dark, intriguing story that makes you want to know more. The Glenn Thinks Stuff Podcast says, it's explosive, captivating, and alluring. And actor Kyle Hester from The Chair, Zombie with the Shotgun, and Preacher Six says, can't wait for this book. You got to get on this. Order your copy today at Indie Planet, A New World of Comics. That's www.indieplanet.com. Hard copies and digital copies are available, and now digital copies are only $5. That's where I said it, just $5. So make sure you order yours today. Hey, Jay, we got to do a promo for Super Movie Brothers because the promo that we had was so old, it's time to do a little bit of an update. So we got to tell everybody what this show's about so they can decide whether they want to listen to it or not. Do we really? Yeah, we have to. Oh, right. It plays on the Podfix Network on other shows. And, you know, we, we kinda, like those guys. We, we do like those guys. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the old promo sounds like shit. So let's give them. I a still like one. it. <laughs> Super Movie Brothers is a podcast that is about two guys who just love movies. But unfortunately, we have two completely varying points of view. We and do varying tastes on movies, so we we like to discuss film from two completely different points of view. But we also drink beer, have a lot of fun doing it, and then we also assign each other movie homework assignments. Each of those assignments is from each of our wheelhouse. So Jay is more of the art house indie type guy. Yes. Meanwhile, I am more of the action cult film horror type genre. But there are times where we do agree on things, and times where we really don't. So it's a lot Absolutely. of absolutely. It's a lot of fun to listen to make sure that you're checking it out we are available on itunes stitcher podbean and also on spotify make sure you search super movie bros on any one of those and of course we are part of the podfix network so make sure you're going over to www.podfixnetwork.com and checking it out cheers okay we are back and we're gonna start with our tens i started the ten. so kyle out of all the movies over 100 movies now we're getting to the one percent's this oh man this is okay a, this is the so uh, 
Uh, number 10. Number 10 for me is a very simple, uh, very simple choice for me that's had to be in the top 10 when I saw it. From the time I saw the trailer to the time I saw the finished movie, I was like, this is there are, It does happen engaging. when you do, especially there's a movie like this, this is going to stay. Yep. And I know like we're going to talk some of our favorite things off on the side. And this was my favorite trailer of the year, um, really? as well as uh, one of my top 10. Clearly number 10 is us from Jordan Peele. Okay. I was, uh, just in awe of how Peele takes a, a story we've seen before in some ways, you know, doppelgangers and um, and really twists and turns it to be a lot more about about classism, you know, and, and, right. and class is a very, a very important theme that comes up in a couple films this year. There's at least one other film on my top 10 that has class as a as an important <laughs> feature. Yeah. Um, yeah. The way he makes a love letter to, you know, this type of film, the doppelganger film, the double film. And does it so well with a family tactic. Um, I think you get someone like Lupita Nyong'o who plays two characters in the film, both excellent and both very different. A lot of film uh, societies and cities, uh, a lot of film critics have given her best actress. Oh, so, yeah. Um, I, I think would, she's going to be our Tony Collette of the year where she doesn't get any love from the Academy. But she'll Academy be does not still. like to nominate anything. For no, I think it's getting better, but I think we still have a ways to go. Yeah, Shape so. of Water can be regarded as a horror movie, but yeah. it's still got a lot of ways to go of Academy being comfortable putting horror movies up there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Us was a nice... What's refreshing is you have to put something new in there, right? Mm -hmm. And the introduction of an old weapon, scissors, being a little more cringy than we're used to. Mm -hmm. um, nice performance by Elizabeth Moss. Uh, yeah, she's great she too. Did a, she had a fantastic year as well, Elizabeth Moss. She came out um, wonderful performance in Her Smell. Uh, didn't, didn't quite make my uh, my top picks, but Her Smell is a great movie mm. of her playing a grungy, <laughs> almost a Courtney Love. Um, she also did uh, Kitchen, the Kitchen. Yep. Um, and I think for all that film's faults, and I gave it a positive review when I first saw The Kitchen, and the film's kind of waned on me over time. I've realized that I kind of picked it apart a lot more, and uh, it didn't. It didn't just. It didn't hit those heights that first viewing for me but i think she's pretty solid in the whole film but um, i do like the reverse it's i think when jordan peele was making this movie is let's project the reverse in front of you know the, <laughs> of class structure of yeah the, the white people and neighbors and we only introduce them for a few seconds <laughs> well yeah and, and yeah. they're you know they're stereotypical better than you neighbors um and i yeah. think lupita's uh, character and um her family unit is one where it's like I would aspire to have a family like the one that she has, um, but they don't. They don't have all the nice things that the next door neighbors have that Elizabeth Moss's characters have. But you look like uh, Winston Duke who plays the husband. He's so happy with his really terrible boat, you know. Like <laughs> um, this is his joy that it brings to him. Yeah. I think it's a film about looking at, you know, the people across the street, um, whether they be coming at you with scissors or not. Uh, you can take the film's mythology because it builds a really intricate web of mythology as it goes on. You can pick yeah. it apart a little bit. You can ask a lot of questions. It doesn't give you all the answers. It kind of makes you uncomfortable in that way. But while I feel Get Out is a superior film, like a, a wholly better film, I think yep. Us is the film I've returned to more than Get Out um, for the pure uh, film-going experience of watching it. It's, it's a bit meaner. It's a bit... Um, Right, this is more a, frightening. You I know? would agree. Where Get Out was a nice, put your feet in the water. And, uh, yeah, I see Get Out as I'm just, like that's is, an Academy Award nominated film, and I, whereas yeah. Us, I feel like there's a lot more of 
Peel's uh, enthusiasm. There's a lot more of his personality coming out in this film. Yeah. Uh, and even even like an ending where you kind of know where a film like this is going to end. You but you get do. there and you you don't feel bad for feeling that. Well, way. <laughs> when I went to see it, you, 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 we've seen enough movies, and I turned to my wife and go, "This is going to end one way or the other." Yep, and and, and I don't, really don't care. And that's yeah, that's yeah. fine. You know, it, if it ended any other way, like I'm not sure how I could have ended it better. Um, but you get to someone like Red, the doppelganger version of of Nyango's character. After you watch the film, you can dive into the choices she made in her speech patterns, in the way she moved, in the way she presented herself. Yeah. And you realize all the work that this actress went into to make her villain the most humane doppelganger double trying to kill you with scissors that she could have made this person. And you can watch the film again knowing how it ends and knowing how... Um, just knowing all the layers that went into it. Yeah. It's a really well-crafted horror film. And I think, uh, you know, in a year where I didn't see a lot of horror that truly shocked and surprised me, I think this was a nice one. It's, it's probably my favorite horror film of the year. Us. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number 10 on my film. This is another one that just happened with you. And I, I saw it and I was like, this is not going to leave my top 10 uh, very hard uh, with uh, the one that you don't really appreciate, but Ari Aster's Midsummer. Uh, definitely a change from what he did with Hereditary and here he's expanding. Um, he said he got an inspiration from Modern Romance with Helper Brooks, which is not a horror movie at all. No, no. I, I can't really see the layer. <laughs> but, but he said he got inspiration and uh, obviously he has some personal things going on with his life. Projected mm-hmm. this clash of beautiful culture mixed in with a modern theme of kids. What do you do with relationships? Obviously, it's all about relationships in a very meta- metaphorical aspect. Mm-hmm. But uh, Midsummer, definitely, I love it. It's a lot of play with a camera here. Um, maybe it goes on about 15 minutes longer than it really needs to. I think it's I think it's too long. <laughs> yeah. But um, I like the whole concept of the clash, of the contrast of everything elegant and beautiful and looks like it's harmonious with a deep undercurrent of Things are not as nice and pretty and really ghastly horrific on the underseam, which sometimes can be a relationship with two people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for me, I this is a film where I, I won't fault anyone for putting it on their list because I, I get a lot of things about it. For me, it's like, you know, I'm baking a really... I'm baking a cake and I'm buying all the top tier ingredients where everything is just going to be tasting so delicious. And I pull that cake out and it just doesn't taste good to me. Um I, right. You know, that's everything like, about movie, it is yeah. so well constructed. I love Florence Pugh in the film. I love Florence Pugh in everything. Um, I think all the performances are fantastic. I think the visual aesthetic of the film is unnerving and disturbing and mean spirited. Um, I think the writing, it's a great character deconstruction. Yeah. There are some great scenes in it that are just like jaw droppingly good. And when you put it all together in the movie, I just don't like it. And I, I don't I don't really get why I don't. I've struggled no, there, with trying we, to figure it out for we, months. There's some things when we criticize artwork. There's some things you hit all the right notes. You mm-hmm. hit everything. Up. I don't know why I don't like it. Yeah. And that does happen. There's and some I, movies I've that made are like, one of my resolutions this, is, this year yeah. to rewatch Midsummer because <laughs> because I really yeah, I, I look at it like it I want to watch it again. I think my cardinal problem with it is this is one where I do think the marketing uh, screwed up the film. I think the marketing sold this as a horror film. And I don't see horror in the movie. There's some horrific scenes. Oh yeah, and it's disturbing. I'm but thinking it's, one it's, right now. Right? Yeah, but like it's it's really for me. It's like a dark fantasy. 
in more ways. Like if you had sold me on a film that was less infused with horror coming off of Hereditary, I expected something a little bit more in tune with Hereditary. And so I think yeah. those trailers, those posters, everything they sold me on, sold me on a film that was a horror film. And I don't think that's what we ended up getting. And so that's why I would yeah. like to revisit the film is I, I think I might be too hard on it. I don't know, but I want to try it again. Well, I, after, after we're done recording, I would like to talk to you about the ending because mm-hmm. the ending is what, and I, this whole journey, it has to have a good ending to it. Or I just not going to care. Oh yeah. And I think it had the right ending for this because like I said, it had to have the right ending for this. If he didn't do it right, then I was not going to care. And it drag out the ending a little longer than it needed to be. It hold on to scenes like Gaspard hold on to things that just come get to the point. But I think if it didn't have the ending that it did, it would not be in my top 10. I like the ending mm. that they, they selected for it. And while definitely I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but I'll, I'll talk to the ending after we're done recording. Oh yeah. See what, definitely. What do you think about it? But you're right. This was uh, Florence who did um, Lady Macbeth, which is, I think She's it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal, and that was a great movie where she used in the movie she used silence as an irritant, right? Mm-hmm. Of just I'm stuck in this thing, and Miles would just piss everybody off. Yeah, I mean, she's yeah. just great in everything, and she just exploded this year with a film like Fighting with My Family, which is not on my top fifteen, but it was such a yeah that kind of warm under the radar with a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, which is one like if you haven't seen that one, go revisit it. Um, Little Women, which I'm seeing this week, so that might pop in there. But like Florence Pugh in that film, I'm I'm excited to see her in Black Widow next year. Like I just I want to see everything that she does because she's clearly a one of the standout all-around performers of the year. Yeah. She, everything she's in has been gold. Yeah. Um, and that's then, fantastic. And, she, and they picked the right person to carry that movie Midsummer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely a, a good choice for her. Again, yeah. I love all the elements. I just don't like the cake that came out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's right, right after this year, I think she's ready to start carrying movies. She's mm-hmm. a phenomenal actress, and I think people are going to recognize her name. But eventually, I think after 2019, she's going to be probably put her name on the movie posters as somebody carrying movies. Oh, definitely. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. So. All right. So number nine with you for my number nine. I mean, I kept thinking in my head, Florence Pugh is in a movie with with Scarlett Johansson next year. She's doing Black Widow next year with Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson happens to be in my number nine. So I went into this one thinking there's no real way you can pull this movie off. And then I sat through Jojo Rabbit Wonderful. and I was blown away by how Taika Waititi made a film about Nazis f- somehow be a film about love. Like, you know, like he turned everything that could be hateful in a film about, you know, joking with Nazis and yeah. he turned it into a film about true emotional connection with other people, not, not physical or emo- like, or, or like, you know, mental um, you know emotional connection but just like a true connection with another person and i think wow just he knocked it out of the park with this movie first 10 minutes of the movie i was like ooh, when they're in camp yeah i was like yeah. this mm, i don't know if i should laugh and no, much it, like uh joker this year this one made me kind of like uh nervous laugh a lot where i was like laughing and then i kind of looked yeah. around the theater like no one thinks i'm a bad guy right like for laughing at this movie but uh, his way of, and I, I think the smart decision to have himself play Hitler because he couldn't find it. He would like, I didn't want to put another person in that role. <laughs> I think you're right. I think if t- uh, this is his project, this yep. is what I he mean, needs to own it. You he know? needs to own it. And he's the director. And I think if you put somebody else, it doesn't really work. And I think him in charge and 
wearing the suit and make it look ridiculous like Charlie Chaplin yep. did. He, like, he's no able to own did. his vision. Yeah. You know, and I think it's funny because he pointed out that he has he has Jewish in his lineage and he's like, what the absolute F you to Hitler is have the Jewish guy playing Hitler. <laughs> right. I think what works with Jojo Rabbit um, and definitely we could talk about it now because it's up in my list, but we'll talk about it now is it works at this is juvenile perspective mm -hmm. of how ridiculous this looks to you. And if you get it as a kid, you can see how what are the grown-ups what are you doing right um and then i but did take to Waititi just just said to sam sam rockwell mm -hmm. just draw what you want to wear yeah <laughs> that sequence where he is like going all out in exactly the attire he always wanted to wear is a cheering moment even though he is a bad person um but I this think, is this is something where i think Tiki. this is where he shines he lets everybody i think shine yep and he yeah. he owns his process you know i think yeah. he he owns the fact that if this film didn't work it could be a career ender like this really was like the gamble of the year for me in a lot of ways um he takes a you know first time child performer and he gives him the world he lets him control the film and then he surrounds him with such tremendous performers um, I'm not yeah. a huge Rebel Wilson fan. I think this is Rebel Wilson's best character that she's ever played. No, um, and you can tell that the there's a lot in. of stuff where she like me. Uh, you, you, you could you could just see throughout the film that this is. I, I think my character would be doing this and saying yeah. that. I don't think he's forceful, and he lets his characters decide what they're. Yeah, the, and he the gives actors us decide what their characters. He do. gives us Scarlett Johansson, who plays the mother, who is deeply uh, conflicted. I mean, she has yeah. to. She has to. You know be guard. who she is guard her child in this really difficult landscape we always view you know the germans in world war ii in cinema you know the bad guys you know they're they're clearly the bad guys and they do a lot of horrible things but we forget that there are people that are being manipulated you right. know children that are being raised to believe things like jewish people have hooves and tails like they, you know, some children probably grew up with this full on belief and it's like, yeah. and we, we meet that on the other end by presenting him with another person to connect with. And the way that the emotional journey takes between those two is so interesting to watch. And it ultimately comes out being a celebration of, of the things we have in common with people as opposed to a celebration of what drives us apart. I think it's wonderful play, you know, the introduction of, you know, the fan phrase of Nazism playing on with the Beatle craze and then the mixture of mm -hmm. you're, you're, you get, you're looking silly, but um, the breakout of dance and music and everything can break away from just idealism. And, you know, idealism, if you start chipping away of it, that's how you do it. You don't just sever. You just start slowly chipping away with it. And what you can use is comedy. Mm -hmm. I think this is Tiki Waititi using his only weapon that he has against this ridiculousness of Nazism is you use comedy. You show how stupid it is. Yep. <laughs> right. and, and yeah. And coming off this, I'm like, give give Taika whatever he wants to do next. Like, yeah. absolutely whatever he wants to do next. Because I yeah. think uh, even, even if he fails, which I haven't seen him do yet, um, even if he fails, I think he will surprise us when he does. No, there's a great, there's a clever scene. There's a great movie, and not just about the writing and the funny stuff, but there's it's shot it really well. Especially when you see Jojo in the middle of the square, and something traumatic happens. I mean, you see the windows are looking like the village is looking down, and like you you're you know what are you? It's almost like the whole community is looking down at you, and uh, disdain. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a moment. I'm not going to spoil it here, but I'll connect it with a, a similar moment in a previous film his it's like in thor ragnarok where he you know he comes into contact with some truly dark and depressing things thor is going through in that film thor is going through 
his people being eliminated by a monster. And in Jojo, he, he deals with these deep themes where again, like the nervous laughter comes into play yeah. by yeah. like really juxtaposing hard hitting emotional beats with moments of levity that make you appreciate the good moments we have in the film, but also don't, don't make fun of the darker stuff. You know, he really, he understands like his, his audience. He understands who's going to be watching this movie and what they're going to think of him. And I think that's an incredibly uh, unique talent to have. There's a wonderful play on beauty and ugliness throughout the whole movie of characters and drawings and features and how Nazi wanted always everything look immaculate and beautiful and then ugliness and stuff like that. It's a wonderful play. I love the whole aspect of it, of contrast and paradoxes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Of some things are funny and you're, you're laughing, 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 and all of a sudden it hits you with like, a, oh, that's, that's hard. Yeah. Um, definitely. Jojo Rabbit. Um, uh, one of the what funniest movie of the year? Uh, definitely up there. Um, the way it, again, like a lot of the, the funny movies that came out this year were ones that were like funny with a touch of sadness. Yeah. And I think like I've got a few others that, well, that fits for 2019 yeah. in the touch of sadness. So, <laughs> uh, number nine with me is another documentary. I think it's one of the best documentaries of the year. Uh, Honeyland directed mm-hmm. by Tamara Kavetska and Lubita Stefanov. Um, make sure, like we said, this is like a paradox, make sure of sting and sweetness of uh, the single woman who makes a living of collecting honey and selling in the village. Um, there's certain beauty. It has one of the best shots ever of her climbing a mountain and the camera follows with her of this wonderful landscape of her and her negotiating living, um, symbolically with the bees of her taking half the honey and leaving half for them and Mm. they live in harmony. And then it gets interrupted by a, a group of family that comes in a just crudely crash into this <laughs> lifestyle. And it's it's one of those where the documentaries are, I'm sure, making this movie and they thought this is going to be nice and sweet and all of a sudden this comes in and they're like, this is movie payoff. Oh, yeah. Because it shows a hard contrast of the, the family that moves in to her life and how it, she's a nice, sweet woman who works with Honey and then this family who just comes fives and just bulldozes with the ruckus and the noise and everything. A hard contract. I believe if you want to know the plot of Shucks, that's the family moving in. That would be us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kids, you catching all this plight? Um, you know, that highlights for me, though, one of the things that makes documentary filmmaking so difficult and yet so amazing at the same time. Right. And I don't mean to diminish any documentary filmmakers. Um, I just say, like, sometimes you accidentally come across something great that changes the direction of your documentary you know yeah. like we, we take these things like a woman who has a symbiont with the bees and she goes and collects the honey and, and she, it's very sweet, you know it's right. it, but the thing is like it's a very simple story which if you described it in one sentence to somebody they would say the whole movie about that like right but it's that's where documentary filmmaking comes in as it presents us with the layers and it peels them back and it shows us it makes something that seems ah, into something that seems amazing And it, you know, and great documentaries sometimes stumble into that greatness, you know, right? Like you get a film like on Icarus, which is available on Netflix or, or searching for sugar man. We're like the first half of it almost feels like one way. And then we're able to go like, wait, here's an Avenue we didn't have before. Um, and so there's a lot of skill that comes with it. And then there's luck with skill where like something really nice happens and the director knows to move in that direction. Yeah. Which and is this a movie really definitely difficult did thing to do. It definitely did. Uh, it, it doesn't project it as evil. It's just something that it is, it's interrupted. Mm-hmm. And then these people are looking, this family is looking away for survive and like, how do you make money? I do this. And they just bulldoze all her steps and, 
her routine, her ritual, her harmony. Mm -hmm. And she's nice about it. She tries to help him and shows him a way. But it just is one of the things that shows like difference of live livelihood of people who live lives of quiet and harmony. And then people are just, I just want to survive. Yep. Yeah. And she has um, like a microculture, kind of like illuminating our culture clash talk yes. from several of the films. Yes. She has a microculture that is clashing with this mega culture that's just, you know, just outside, you know, and as yeah. it comes and invades. So, and it's in, in Macedonia and it's all this, uh, the ancient architecture that she w walks around the ancient city and then the people that come in, they don't really care. Yeah. And then she's like, well, people lived here thousands of years ago. I just want to be, keep it nice and delicate. Um, I would be really surprised if that doesn't get nominated for best documentary. I think it'll get a nomination. I do. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very mixed field and I've learned this year not to judge or not to, uh, Anticipate. Not to really yeah, anticipate what's going to happen because I think the two best documentaries of last year got skirted in uh, Three Identical Strangers and Won't You Be My Neighbor. So Three Identical Strangers was on my list top 10 last year. Yeah, and it just got skirted right by. And it's tough to, it's tough to claim. Yeah. And a lot of people say the documentary uh, crew who nominates will purposely vote for films that no one's talking about to bring them into the limelight or maybe to like, you know, give a holier than thou kind of a, an yeah. appearance. And it seems like that's not the first time it's happened with documentaries. And so I'm really curious, but I think Honeyland will secure a spot this year because it's not really in the popular discussion. I mean, if you just took the sound off and you mm -hmm. watch it, you can get it. And it looks amazing. Mm -hmm. And I've tried, I tried it when I watched it, I took the sound off and just, you can just watch them interact with each other and you can get it without the sound. And it looks magnificent. Mm. So, well. all right. Moving on. So my next film, my number eight, yeah. um, is one that I didn't want to include. And I was like, I, <laughs> let's put it like this. Before I saw it, I was like, <laughs> there's no way this movie will be in my top anything. It'll be good. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I trusted the filmmakers to be good. I just didn't expect to be pulled in and affected the way I was. I rewatched this film on Christmas Day this year okay. with my wife. And it broke me for an hour and 40 minutes. And that was Toy Story 4. Wow. I am not a big fan of the Toy Story movies. Not like just, I don't think they're wow. bad. You're surprised they just me never again. really okay. like pulled me in. I, I was never big on the first or the second. I was like, I get it. They're cool and everything. The third film for me, I, I connected with the sense of loss that these toys feel now that they're, that okay. they've been taken away from their owner. And I thought it was a really neat idea for a trilogy capper that really challenges these people that have grown up watching these characters. This is the one for me where it felt like this is how you end this story. You get Woody, who's been owned by this new owner now for some time. We're not really sure exactly how much, but uh, he's not the favorite anymore. You know, he's he's a secondhand toy to this to Bonnie, and watching him get lost, trying to protect her, trying to be her everything. You know, he's really okay. a parent experiencing his child not being in love with him the same way that she once was, and he gets an opportunity to really like look at what he wants in his existence. Like it's a really, it breaks all the rules of what the Toy Story movies have been up until right. this point. And we've seen this uh, kind of played out like in the movie Logan, where yeah. somebody who's been in the, a shining example of heroism and then all of a sudden is just nothing. Yeah. Right? And, and now, he's, now he's kind of like looking for like, how, how can I be the, the toy I'm supposed to be? And he really right. comes across a like conscience breaking moment where he really has to evolve and change i think it's the most heartfelt one there's a lot of moments where you know he experiences loss and what's great for me is 
it's not afraid as a film to introduce us to new characters that can guide the story in a different way. It doesn't feel like, like tied to what came before, you know, it's really allowed to, to breathe. And we get a lot of cool characters and there are a lot of fun, like levity characters, but also some serious darker ones. It asks a lot of difficult questions. It's, it's really like heroism arc. And that's been played with Greek pathology of doing fantastic things. And you're part of the whole world. And then your twilight years that people kind of forgot about you. Mm-hmm. You know, what What are you, you know, you're being replaced almost. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? And I think, you know, diving into my love of Keanu Reeves this year. Uh, yes, I Canada. When he plays, um, he plays the, the Canadian stunt toy yeah. that basically like didn't operate the way it was supposed to in the commercials, which we've all gotten toys in our lives that didn't operate the way right. it was we, supposed we've to in the Right, we were all part of the click and bait. Yeah, uh, and I think like having and, him now the bait and switch of this is what it, and then you get it's like doesn't work that way. Oh yeah, it doesn't fly over buildings. Um, what I I like about his character though is you know he's someone who's presented with everything he should be, and he's not that. And yeah. I think that's such a hard hitting thing to throw into a kids movie, and that's what I really think is strong about where Pixar is right now. Pixar is not making family movies they're making animated movies that are accessible to families i like that um they deal with some really tough things and i think in 2020 we're gonna see that more they got some more films to drop in next year that look like they're gonna they're gonna hurt (laughs) so So. this is probably it you think so i hope so because i think that uh it was a mistake to end toy story 3 being the end of andy's journey when andy's not the character that we're invested in and i think toy story 4 being the end of woody's story i think really it ends the story that we were told in the first film. So I hope it is the ending. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number eight. I don't know if it's Number on your eight. list yet or not. Um, I'm going to pick uh, Tarantino once upon a time in Hollywood. It is on my list. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about it now unless you want to move up. No, no, no. Uh, we'll talk about it. Uh, definitely when I saw it, I was like, this is probably one of his best since Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Go on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about it, it's, Typical of Tarantino, but it's it's you know he the the whole mixture of black and white and his his fascination with Hollywood and his mm-hmm. deep. I mean, I'm sure he did extensive research going on making manufactured of stories of Leonardo DiCaprio's characters of what he did and all the other filmography. So um, this is definitely Tarantino's playground. This is what mm-hmm. he loves, um, and I really love the. I don't like the overall picture, but I love the details of the picture. Um, Definitely an opus that I really thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, for me, it's a film that I walked out of the first time having enjoyed, but not knowing how I really felt about it. Yeah. I needed to ruminate on it, much like with the last Star Wars film. Like, I needed some time to think on this. And and really, and it, I was blessed that I was able to talk with other people that had watched the film right afterwards. We, we had to go to a press screening and just kind of, it was nice after leaving to have this big, like, discussion with a bunch of other people that had gone to the film. And I didn't initially like the ending. And I I didn't initially connect with um, all the different pieces of the film, but I couldn't deny the fact that I wanted to watch it again immediately afterwards. And I saw it the next day um, when it released. And then I saw it a couple days after that again. And I just found myself kept going back to this movie. Um, When you view it in the context that this is Tarantino's fairy tale, this is once upon a time. This is not how he really viewed sixties Hollywood. This is how he feels 60s Hollywood uh, this is, could be. You this know? is his rest of Hollywood that never was. Yeah, and I think yeah. his usage of the Sharon Tate as a character played by Margot Robbie as a almost like ticking time bomb. Like we're counting down with her 
to yeah. this inevitable um, horrific event. But then we're also using this time that we have to count down with two characters. And I think probably the two characters that had the most chemistry this entire year were Leo and Brad Pitt. I agree. They bromance like I've never seen a bromance <laughs> I before. I agree. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I love, you know, Brad Pitt's going to get all the awards recognition for this. I think he's going to get the best supporting actor and Oscar. Then, but he he let Leonardo shine. Yes. He was able to let step, step back. And, yeah. and and Leo gets these meaty moments and he gets to play a character he's never played before. He gets to play kind of a loser. Like, yeah. you know, he's, he's a famous actor, but he's also... You know he's broken. He doesn't know who he is anymore. No, he can't you know, seem you know, to find his. We talked route. about uh, his trailer park scene that we we probably agree that Tarantino said just go. He didn't even talk to him. Just go and yeah. Do what, do I what think you he want. actually helped influence that scene and was like, I need some time to show me failing because I think the failures actually were less during that sequence initially, and yeah. DiCaprio fought to have more failures in that scene. Um, and then you get Brad Pitt, who's just the, he's probably the coolest Tarantino character. In over a decade, and we don't, we don't really know if he's a hero or a villain. They There's present the, him as a very like un, uncomfortable character at times. Yeah, um, and I at the second viewing, I was like, I don't think this is a heroic character at all. Yeah, there's some definitely this undercurrent projected in the movie that he's not the greatest person ever. Yeah, and like I I, I like that we don't get all the answers with his character that we right. pine for. I don't think we should. Um, right, and I think that might almost be our answer is that we don't get the answer. So it might not be the answer we want. Um, I think, yeah, the two of them have such trem tremendous chemistry. And I think the film is filled with uh, great cameos, great smaller performances. Um, just that it, it's just filled. It's just filled with fun yeah. time. It's Tarantino's hangout movie. He's never done a, a true to form hangout movie. And this yeah. is him just getting to hang out in this world. I watched this as well this past weekend again. Um, and my wife kind of came out of it going, it was good, but I don't think I'd ever watch it again. And I get what she's connecting to it. She was kind of hoping for more of a plot. And there's not as much of a plot to this film. It's more about character choices and how they tweak and how they adjust. Um, but it sticks with you. Really I think I, I think you're right on that, and I agree with you. It's more of a collection of pieces rather than a whole film. Yep. Obviously, there's some tie the knot at the end move, the parts of it. But if you look at it, it's just a slices of pieces of great pieces of a puzzle and collectively, the whole puzzle doesn't really work very well. But if you like the little details, you're going to enjoy the movie. It feels to me like if Tarantino made a 60s set Hollywood movie in the 60s. And what I mean yeah. by that is uh, just kind of a little bit less like constructed of a narrative. The nar narrative is there, but it's less constructive. It's more playful. It's kind of hanging yeah. out and checking things out. And I think there's some, some 60s cinema that kind of lets itself breathe a bit and lets itself kind of loosey-goosey around. Yeah. It kind of feels like he went in a time machine and made the movie, you yes. know? Yeah. Um, and what I love about it, too, is watching it the second time and seeing how all of these little character moments mean something to the end. Like, yeah. that last 20 minutes, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard about the last 20 minutes, but that last 20 minutes takes everything that we have been building towards. No. And... And lights it on fire. And you then, know? And, well, that was Tarantino being really angry at what happened in real life. And mm -hmm. he wants to take it out on what those people did yeah. in real life and presented it a very Tarantino way of what's going to happen. Exactly. To you. Yeah. yeah. And so it was, uh, I guess, less less shocking in a shocking kind of way, but it works pretty well I upon could, several viewings. <laughs> that was a nice trick of Tarantino because they're like, where is the horrific violence? I'm expecting something. I've, I've seen enough Tarantino movies, you know. Where is it then? Yeah, there's so little violence in this film. Yeah. You know, I mean, per moments on screen. <laughs>
I I think there's probably nominated for art production. I think it's going to get a lot of nominations, but I think as yeah. with a lot of recent Tarantino stuff, it's going to maybe get, get some Brad get yeah. some Brad Pitt love, and I think that might be all that we see for him. Um, maybe some production design love, but I think he's going to pepper with a lot of nominees, and I think he's going to carry uh, very few home. So, all right. So number seven, number seven for me. Um, so just jumping back to last year, I was a huge fan of the film Can You Ever Forgive Me, which nobody talked about. Um, the film got a few nominations. Uh, you know, Melissa McCarthy actually doing a great dramatic performance again. That this is director, who's the writer, the plagiarized yeah, writer, yeah, uh, Lee Israel, yeah. the the woman who plagiarized uh, cards to try yeah. and make money because she was a failing author. And I think this director, uh, Muriel Heller, who came off of that film, decided to tackle a very, almost like a. a insurmountable task by directing a Mr. Rogers movie and I was so surprised by how much it affected me as being a film about about you know looking at internally as opposed to looking at Mr. Rogers and that was a beautiful day in the neighborhood okay um, we can look at all the elements of it that are Mr. Rogers centric but he's yeah. a side character in the story it's about this man who has had not a great upbringing and he's kind of lost all the joy and happiness in his life you know he has a family and he, he loves the one his interviewing Mr. Rogers. Yes. We're kind of following um, his. And he's sent. Yeah. He's sent to interview and do a, a, a puff piece, if you will, something that he's not normally used to doing. He usually does a lot more hard hitting stuff. And he finds that his connection with Mr. Rogers, someone he kind of kind of looks down at like, you know, oh, he's he's just a lovey dovey, kind of a weird guy. And and he sees a lot in himself that's able to open it up. It's a tremendously moving story of two people that couldn't be more opposite having a connection forced upon <laughs> Gotta have the contrast right yeah and it's yeah. it's really well done and tom hanks doesn't try to do a impression or a caricature he plays with mr rogers as tom hanks would play a mr rogers i think you character. have to do that yeah and then, I, I think that yeah. was my biggest concern is i was like i love tom hanks but there's no way he's gonna do mr rogers right no and i the, my automatic is going back to the aviator where kate blanchett playing Catherine Eppert, and then mm -hmm. she's not doing Catherine; she's just playing kate blanchett playing Catherine yes because your number one focus yeah. should not be getting 100 percent exactly how these people are it should be creating a, a a film experience yeah and i think if if tom hanks had gone the route of trying to be a Mr. Rogers, he would have failed. And I think he's a tremendous supporting player in the film. It hits really hard with the elements I didn't expect. And there's a great scene in a diner. I'm not going to dive into any more than that, but it's a scene in the diner that has to do with um, silence and emotional connection. And it's, I, I heard people in the theater reacting to that sequence in the same way I did. And it was an incredibly beautiful moment to share an experience with other people. It's hard to do a diner scene, especially movies, because you, mm -hmm. you're going to get the loud or you're going to get the soft. And it's and usually when you do a diner scene, it's about the transition of moving, especially when in movies, it's about yeah. moving from one place to another. And this sequence is done in a way where, again, it shouldn't have worked in the film. And I think it's probably one of the best single sequences of a film in the past decade. Okay. Um, and it elevates the whole film experience for me. Like I, I had changed as a person coming out of that movie. So and that's what movies are. Yep. And that's yeah. what it was. And it makes up for a lot of my sadness that won't you be my neighbor was not nominated for best documentary last year, which it should have been <laughs> another one on your list that I have yet to see. I haven't yet to see toy story Four. I've yet to see uh, beautiful 
Uh, I kind of went into Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood thinking neighborhood. it's it's going to be good, but I don't know if it's going to affect me. And it it does stay with you. And it's it, it, it had really a lot of go does. against it because they had a great documentary come out a couple of years ago that people yep, went to theater with two see. two titles that are almost interchangeable. I've heard yeah. people talk about one film with the other's title a lot. And, and, it's, and PBS did their three hour long documentary, which go you know with the other died. So there was like two documentaries came out simultaneously, and then you're going to make another narrative movie about it, and it's you could do really hard gamble yeah but i think it says a lot about where we are as a society and culture right now at the end of this decade is yeah. that we need we need the hopeful we need the love we need the mr rogers of the world you know like we do and, and i think getting more of that especially in a two-hour film not a problem for me <laughs> <laughs> all right the love and the nice and cushiness is not going to be on my number seven <laughs> far from it um i really went away might be impressed with this as somebody who's a very a little more creative, a little more avant-garde person. Um, I really enjoyed Robert Eggers, the lighthouse um, shot in black and white. It takes you away from an environment. It looks like it's supposed to be new England, but he did that mm -hmm. with the movie, the witch um, isolated environment. And we talked about with Vanessa, you suck away time and movies are not about time. And yeah, there's no time and place in this movie. <laughs> like where is the outside world and how they get blended? There's a lot of questions and you plopped into this movie of two people, um, almost set into a delusional state. And I really love the feel of this. I love the look of it, of, of them constantly battling nature. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they're a conflict, not of this of themselves, but of nature. You can see, there's a certain of Robert Patterson with the wheelbarrow. I go, if he fumbles the wheelbarrow, I'm going to enjoy it because I know what they're going after of uh, this man against man against nature, man against themselves, man against a goal mm -hmm. of striving for something brighter and you can't touch it. Yeah. I think the way it, it deals with the outside nature as well as the inner human nature yeah. of two people stuck in one place for an extended period of time with one job. Um, is is not comfortable and not fun but no. it's definitely well made um this one for me it definitely was on the honorable mentions just because yeah. it, it it was something i wish to go back to but i need some space <laughs> um it's not it's not fun it's not joyful but if you ever had any doubts that robert pattinson could play a batman or that he was not a great actor who just did the twilight movies good time and follow it up with the lighthouse and yeah. you will not be disappointed in this guy as a as a true tour de force performer who holds his own against an arguably more impressive actor in willem dafoe I, I mean no disrespect to robert but like willem dafoe has for the last like five years done an imp incredible performance that just like skirts up and then <laughs> disappears again yeah. and he's never gotten like that true to love man willem dafoe is amazing and everything so there's a certain element of symmetry throughout the whole movie. Mm -hmm. If you want to go back and look at it, the, the, them of the hierarchy of the lighthouse and everything and how it broke up the island and everything. There's a certain annoying symmetrical part of it. I like the shot of them looking at the camera almost like they're taking a photograph of this is might as well have evidence. This is this is us before things get really weird. Right? Yeah, I like that almost like it's a postcard of them. Just the camera just focuses on them. They're almost doing a photograph posture and it kind of even though it takes you away from what's going on but it's almost like audience participation like you're coming with us or mm -hmm. like or like a send-off this is what we like before thing you know i like that play and it fit very well 
I don't know if I really enjoy the ending to it, but I think it's the ending that need to be written for it. That's exactly what I was going to say is it feels um, it feels in some ways kind of like the ending to The Witch where yeah. it's the ending that I felt we were going to get. Right. Um, and execution aside, it's the ending I know that we should have had. Yeah. I, I felt I wanted a few more minutes with that ending. Like it, it does move pretty fast when you get to the last five minutes of the film for, right. for one that's, that's kind of taken its time for the entirety of the film. And I think Robert Eggers as a writer, and if you watch The Witch, doesn't really care about the ending. He likes the journey leading up to that's, that. That's what's most important about it is yeah. I know people that did not like the ending to this film and they still gave it a pretty positive outlook on it because it, it is more about the journey, uh, even if it's not a happy journey. You know, it's an right. interesting one. I've always said your, char your characters don't have to be nice people as long as they're interesting people. There's a certain... A similarity between the witch and um, uh, the lighthouse, mm -hmm. where the ending is almost orgasmic. Yeah, and even, even if Especially it's orgasmic, after that weird fight scene in the kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> but a certain element that it's not orgasmic, but it's not pleasurable. Yeah, and I think Robert is investigating this whole aspect of what is, what is it? What is pleasure to you? It could be something painful. What is good and evil and all this stuff? There's a lot of themes Robert Eggers is really investigating with these two yeah and what i took out of it is being very much uh the thing that you're searching for will not always be the thing you want in the end yeah um like he's that. he's pining to to get access to to rise up among the ranks if there's only two ranks um and he just never gets, gets where it. he wants to yeah. and you know me i love a film that has a good dinner scene and there's a lot of great dinner scenes in this movie it's funny to me that that you said like yeah. it's without joy because it is true. Like, again, like that nervous laughter. I wasn't so much nervous about being around other people when I laughed, but like you laugh and then you're like, maybe that wasn't funny. <laughs> uh, um, Willem Dafoe was actually pretty good in Motherless Brooklyn, if you got to mm. watch that too. And he, he maintained his beard. So oh, you got to. <laughs> you if got, you're if you're He Dafoe. has a beard in the lighthouse, but he maintained it in uh, Motherless Brooklyn too. He, uh, I don't know. Do you think he's going to get nominated for this? I think he will get, I think if anything comes Willem, out of the lighthouse, yeah. it's going to be Willem Dafoe's nomination. I do think since it'll be supporting, I think that race has been run already. I don't think he's going to win, but coming off of at eternity's gate last year and the Florida project two years ago, he needs to get a win in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, I really thought this was going to be his year, but I think the lighthouse has, I think, I think it's, weirdness has cooled a lot of the Academy. And I think you, you and I agree with that. That it's a little too artsy for the Academy. Mm -hmm. um, I could see a cinematography nom yes. um, because it's, it's, it's gorgeously old and it's gorgeously broken looking. Um, every single shot is set up like a painting. Right, you know? there's a play or like you found an old film strip. And you I know? I, I'm not going to ruin it for anybody. There's a scene where they're, they're trying to clean stuff up and it's like, it's not going to go well because yeah. it looks too, uh, we like the the feeling and I like that play that even though they're clean stuff up, it's just not going to go well. It's, yeah. It's, it's kind of like, <laughs> I'm going to clean as much as I can. It's still going to look like garbage though. <laughs> right. You know, you're, you're polishing a rust bucket, right? Almost mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is not going to go well. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think Willie Deaf deserves the love, but Willie Deaf is not going to get it uh, with a win this year. So yeah, eventually, uh, hopefully something will come along. Okay, uh, number six. I think we're on six, right? Number six, yes. Yeah. Um, my first favorite film of the year. And what I mean by that is my first film that went to the top of my list and, and stayed for me there was for transit. a good amount of time. Sorry, yeah, for you it was transit. Sorry, uh, for me, it was coming off of my love for Dexter Fletcher. I adore his film, Eddie the Eagle. 
I think he probably saved Bohemian Rhapsody in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, he knows how to tackle films that create a sense of joy and create something we've never seen before in film. And I think nobody does that with a musical biopic like Dexter Fletcher did with Rocket Man. Rocket Man. Yes. I think Rocket yes. Man it was, it was is a, phenomenal. And I, I think it comes off of like, it's in May. You know, it's, it's in a bad season for it to be released because it yeah. disappeared. And I think it's not going to get the love that I feel it needs at the end of the year. But he takes the decision to make a musical instead of making a biopic. I absolutely agree. It breaks agree. all the yes. rules yeah. of how that works. My only frustrations coming out of the film were ones that later on I looked and I was like, okay, that's a little harsh, Kyle. Uh, things like, uh, I, I would give it a little bit of a fault in the fact that the film opens with that very like Dewey Cox joke uh, from Walk Hard where it's like before he kicks drugs, Elton John has to remember his whole life. Um, but the way he does it yeah, in a musical does, sense yeah. is just so enjoyable. And it's stuff we've never seen before done in a, in a uh, musical biopic. What's great about it is it, it captures who Elton John was emotionally I, more so yes. than any of the plot points in his life. It would not work well if he did a biography. No, and I and think, I, I mean, it would lose what makes Elton John so fantastic. Yes, you know? and it, it plays on, I think, the whole encapsulating of what Elton John is selling, this magical, mystical, of fun of, you know, the, a, a, go see him as a performance mm -hmm. and trying to encapsulate that this is what he wanted in real life, a fun, magical, and it wasn't really hit him eventually. Yeah. 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 If, if you want to see the good comparison between like how these things work, it's look at the first half of Bohemian Rhapsody versus the second half. The first half feels like a VH1 behind the music, check off all the boxes that we can check yeah, off, let's show all these things right, happen. Yeah. It's when you dive into him as a character, Freddie Mercury, in the last half of the film, which I believe is probably where Dexter Fletcher had his most involvement because it feels the most like Rocket Man. It just feels like it's yeah. in the movie with that um, that you really see how well Dexter Fletcher can captivate a story um, Dexter Fletcher is attached to two films coming off of Rocket Man okay. Sherlock Holmes 3 with Robert Downey Jr. which I don't know is still a thing or not I heard about that a couple months ago he's also directing a film about Renfield the character from the Dracula film from Renfield's perspective okay the one who came back crazy the, the one first, one, crazy. Who, the first yep. one who visited uh, Count Dracula and then when came back crazy before yes. Tom Hart so uh he's another one just like with Taika Waititi where I haven't seen anything that's made me think he's incapable everything I've seen has made me think I just want to see more from him um, he has a voice that's all his own. Dexter Fletcher has films that you watch and you're like, yep, that's Dexter. I just want him to do more. Uh, Taron didn't, Egerton. Didn't do an impersonation of Elton. He did himself do an Elton. And I, yeah. it really did shine. Because that, that's the whole basis of the movie. You needed somebody to do that. Yeah, I think anybody who does, like, just like what, what we talked about with Tom Hanks, anybody who does a flat-out impression is missing the point of the film. Yeah, And I think that's where Taron learning how to sing the songs actually doing it and then getting that involvement with you know knowing elton john as a person being able to capture him as a person instead yeah. of as a uh as a uh, subject if you will yeah i think it's a wonderful it's just not gonna get he's not gonna get accolades for it no i don't think taron will i think uh you know taron's got some things coming up i think he's gonna do just fine uh, but I, I want I want to see him break that mold because he kind of exploded a couple years ago into yeah, onto the, the scene Man, and he you know yeah. he needs a little bit of time. Not everybody gets there you know just knocking him out of the park every time. He's going to do good work and he's going to get somewhere later on. Uh, but I think yeah this is this will not be his year for nominations. Although he did get a few uh, like Critics Choice and he got a few crumbs stuff have been, yeah. have been coming. So maybe that could pick up. Um, it all depends on how how uh, I believe. Uh, 
Sony wants to play it. So dance numbers were great. Oh, yeah. I, they're fabulous. It's a fun movie to go see. I thought I thought we were you know I thought we, if you go see it, you're gonna get the downtrodden, the negativity, the the bad side. You de- you definitely get the warts and all that stuff. You did but, it, yeah. But there's some fun things to go see about it. I think the way they handle his growing from a child to an adult with the Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting song, yeah, um, where he's basically running through his teenage years and shows up in the same place at the end of the song that yeah. he started in, but he's older yeah. now. He's not wiser, but he's older. And I think that that captures just such a way of like, this is how you use music to tell a story. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, so number six for me is, I don't know if it's on there, but The Irishman. Not on my list. Not on your list? Uh, well, can I ask why? Just So, uh, Martin Before Scorsese you- is on my like Mount Rushmore of filmmakers. I will yeah. see everything he does. I love a lot of what he does. For me, with The Irishman, it's still in that like uh, growing on me phase. I've watched it twice. I really enjoy the film. It just... Uh, it compares itself to so many of Scorsese's other films that I think are better. I agree that even though it's on my list, it doesn't have the energy that Goodfellas yeah. and Casino has. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's subtracting a lot of things from his. This is technically sound movie. Oh, everything about it is great. If this yeah. was his you know, first or fifth film coming out of the gate, I, I would look at it as, wow, what a masterpiece. And I still do. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. But it's a question for me of did this one stay with me in the same way that a lot of these other films did? And I appreciate it as not having the energy that, because this is actually kind of like a closure mm-hmm. as somebody who's done a immense amount of ener- movies throughout the years. And this is kind of almost kind of like a appreciation, an old guard of just, you know, bringing everybody back and let's do one last hurrah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely long. Yeah, but that, but it that maintains didn't bother the me a lot. It, yeah. yeah, like I, I didn't find myself struggling with the, the, the speed of the film. Um, no. I think you could have chopped some time off of it, but I've always been one to say like, I, that's not always my most, most important concern, you know? Right. It's how you use the time. Um, especially when you have all the guys back again. And I think this is, you know, your quiet acting. Not mm-hmm. so much your loud. Obviously, Al Pacino is the loud one. He gets a couple moments where he gets to do his, you moments, know. But, Solidarity. Uh, <laughs> but it, I think you, especially with a movie like this where you have having a reserve and Joe Pesci is doing his reserve and best reserve and this send off. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's the big thing. Of it. it doesn't have the energy that we're so used to of Martin Scorsese films having. Even Departy even had it. Yeah, a little bit of it. Yeah. But it, it feels like you're forcing energy into it there's a melancholy feeling to it I agree. uh you know it and it's a film that i don't think it's a you slow understand movie. it until you get to the end of it and yeah. then you can you go back and you kind of want to watch it that's one of the brilliant things about it, it being on netflix i wanted to see this thing in the theater i just didn't get the chance but watching it on netflix means you can watch it again on netflix um without <laughs> any problems uh for me it's a film about outlasting you know, it's a film about yes. being the last person in the room um, and, and how sad that has to be. You know, we're, we're peppered throughout the film with characters that show up, small characters who get like we get to find out how they died. OK. Yeah. And it's it's a film about, you know, being the last one in the room, you know, and, and it not always being exactly how you want it to be. Uh, Frank's character, played by Robert De Niro, is yeah. is tasked with a lot of things that lose friends. Not right, always, yeah. you know, not always by his hand, but he has to make decisions 
for what he thinks is the right call, what the honorable call is. And it, it's fun to watch honor and dishonor in the mob. Um, <laughs> but he's tasked with making choices that he thinks will bring him the greatest honor. And then he finds that it makes him more lonely. Yeah. And it's really tough to watch that, you know, because uh, Scorsese, especially with Goodfellas and Casino, is known for making his characters look pretty darn cool. <laughs> and I wouldn't say anyone in this movie is cool by their actions. You know, every action no. kind of leads down a path of sadness. And even if they're trying to save somebody like, uh, you know, Al Pacino character to like please stop and Al Pacino's like no I'm not I'm gonna keep going and it's uh, it's one of those unwavery of I'm trying to save you from something that I'm going to do yeah right yeah I think so even though your actions are noble you're really <laughs> right. yeah you're, you're not making friends where you are like he starts out making a lot of friends because of how he his loyalty is aligned but yeah. after a certain amount of time your loyalty gets you to a place where you have to choose and he makes choices that ultimately make him a sad unlikable interesting yeah. but not a very like fun character um i think the the biggest the biggest problem with the film is not its length but it's that its length will prohibit people from watching it again i agree if that makes sense <laughs> I, yeah i agree that, um, um because it's a long journey and you want to start that up again yeah um and especially when you have a really focus of longevity, that's the movie longevity. Yeah. You go through decades of, do you, do you want to climb that Mount Everest ever again? Mm -hmm. um, and I think watching it the second time, I liked it more, yeah. but I would still probably need a third time or maybe a fourth time to really hit that level. Thankfully with Scorsese, I'll probably get that. Um, yeah. I tend to go back to his films quite a lot. So there's a lot of great, technical stuff in the movie of the, the you know cutting up the story of them traveling and mm -hmm. breaking up and pieces like that of him reflecting and going forward and backwards um has the ending that i liked i ended yeah. what i thought it should it, it ended again like it ends in a way where it's the ending we deserve as audience goers yeah but it's not the ending that you think is going to happen i guess if that you know it, right it's one where you're like oh oh we're done okay um, but it's the ending that should be for Frank's character. Needed. Yeah, it's exactly him. where he needs to be. Yeah. Um, one other point I want to make, so I won't get a chance to bring this up again. The, uh, the de-aging works until it doesn't. Um, there is a scene where Frank is in the army and he's doing something bad. And it's a quick little moment, but I don't think the de-aging works to that extent. Yeah. And I would have chopped that sequence out. It's about 30 seconds of the film. Wouldn't miss it. Um, there's a certain amount of the uncanny valley where that that didn't work for me and it's a little jarring when we first see that flashback to frank in um you know driving trucks and after that it works pretty well but there's yeah. a few moments in the beginning where it just you you see it you see it very you know that's one of the, we're gonna find out eventually from years from now if the special effects works on their faces and yeah looking is this gonna maintain or keep up or yeah, that's going to be the, that's, the big that's, question. If that time. stays longer, then the film's going to keep... If that erodes away, then the film's not... The shine's going to wear off a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. the question of whether or not this film will stay in that like top-tier Scorsese is much the same question of the character, Frank, and that is with time. Yes. You know, what, what happens, so... <laughs> yes, yes. All right, now we're getting to the meat of the stuff. All right, so number five for you. Oh, number five is a movie... Mm. I don't even know what to say about it. It's too bad I put it on the list because I, I I almost can't even talk about it. And it's it's <laughs> what? it's Parasite. I just 
Number I'm five. at a loss okay. with right. Parasite. You want to wait because it's number one. It is. Is, that's number one for it's me. Number you one. Wait. You want to wait? Um, well, we'll hold off until you. Then okay. give me some time to ruminate on. No, I took the shine off a lot of other stuff, so it's number five for you, Parasite. Mm-hmm. Um, number five for me is the Apollo documentary. The Apollo, Apollo or Apollo, Apollo 11? Apollo 11 documentary. Okay, because there is an Apollo documentary there about is, the Apollo. There <laughs> is. I, try, I was focused so much on saying make sure you get Apollo 11. It is the Apollo 11 documentary. I regard it as one of the best documentaries I've seen in a long time. There is no narration to this. It is a collection of footage going through the, would project as what happened during that time of the anxiety, the mm-hmm. nervousness of getting this right. You're shooting people into outer space. They're going to the move. Then something, you see the nervousness and the whole scope of it is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. I loved it from beginning to end. And then you mean look, it didn't even treat like I was watching a documentary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an experience. I, I mean, yes. it's, it's my favorite documentary of the year. It's not on my yeah. top 15, but it is my favorite documentary of the year. And it's the one it's I, mine, that yeah. I think to myself, just how much work went into this. I looked at, um, you know, recently I rewatched with my wife, uh, uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, the Peter Jackson documentary about World yeah. War One, And he had 100 hours to work with a video and 600 hours of audio. There are thousands of hours of like footage a lot of it unseen before most of the film was constructed right. from unseen footage being able to craft any sort of narrative out of it without like having a voiceover without having someone guide you on the journey or no. force you to feel things this is presented like you're a fly on the wall of all these different walls you know yeah. watching this this story unfold for me someone who you know i didn't i wasn't around during you know this this yeah, event so i didn't get to watch it take place i didn't get to feel that feeling and i felt it in the theater i saw this thing in imax holy wow yeah. i mean and it was i mean it was just an incredible experience surrounded by people and i actually was sitting next to two people who were alive during that experience who um and like to share in that with them and 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 like see them cry during the sequences where we're like are we going to do this? Are we going to, are we going to get there? What's great about the film is it's designed in a way to make you think, are they not going to make it? Like right. I had that moment in my head where I was like, we make it right. Like, yeah. <laughs> like where it, it gives you that, like, will they, won't they it presents a narrative that's very, uh, questioning. I, you know, I think it encapsulates what we, it's not in the text, it's in the textbooks. We can read it, but mm-hmm. you don't get the experience of it without seeing this movie. Yeah, this is a you historical finally, event. I, you get, to I live. get it now. Mm-hmm. Because this, we went to the moon, big deal. This shows you what all went through mm-hmm. of doing it. And you didn't a lot of stuff we didn't know about. They didn't really reveal. They had a leak. Yep. <laughs> they never talked about that in public ever before. Um you see them getting strapped in their suits and you see in their eyes the, the astronauts. Holy crap, you know, mm-hmm. we're actually doing it now. They're like It's it's a suicide mission. I mean, like yeah. in my head watching that unfold, I think there was moments in their eyes you can see like we're just we're not gonna make it like well, and if whole, we don't we don't <laughs> even if when and when they make it you still have to go back yeah yeah right. when you get to your destination you're fifty percent done okay right. like they mention it too like all right well he has to come back and pick us up and like even going hopefully. back yeah, yeah. it's it was a wonder doc- I regard it as one of the best documentaries I've seen in a, in a very long time. Yeah, a staggeringly difficult process to create yeah. a, a historical event that you can relive, which doesn't happen very often. I love the opening of them just carrying, the, trucking the, the rocket oh, yeah. to the station. How and you mad- realize that it's 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 in pieces. Like, we're, <laughs> we're putting together Legos and throwing them into space. Like, 
that's incredible. And you know what's great yeah. too is it 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 was released in a time you know documentaries don't get a lot of like theater love. No, but it was released in a time where we were coming off of First Man. And that, I think Chazelle that subtracted film. a lot of and people from going. It did, but like yeah. for me, it was it's such a great double feature, you know, like right. experiencing like everything, you know, from a narrative perspective unfolding as you create this impossible mission, yeah. and then being able to see the actual live footage of it taking place. Like, wow! I mean, I it, it's truly cinema at its highest form which is you know again like creating an experience a livable experience a world you can inhabit i agree i i would say turn off the lights find your biggest screen you can get a hold of and watch it yep and you just you can understand the anxiety the anticipation the whole parse it's a seven day thing you forget yeah. about it. they didn't they just they did yeah and they present it in 90 minutes again <laughs> so uh yes that was for me apollo 11 documentary uh, hopefully it will get nominated i really see even though documentary feels heavy there's a lot of good films out there like the great hack and stuff like mm -hmm. that and uh brink and hail satan Apollo 11 is just fascinating this one did its, its first task yeah. it did its first big task which was getting to the short list um, Hail Satan didn't get to the short list. No. Not all of them did. So there, you know, there's some already that aren't going to be included. Um, I think when you look at the list that's there, I can see uh, a Honeyland. I can see a Apollo 11. Yeah. Um, I'm a little shocked that uh, the biggest little uh, farm farm made yeah. it to that list. It's a very good movie, but it's, I'm just surprised it's considered in that because nobody's tier. really talking about it. Yeah. Talking, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think Apollo 11 has a significant chance just making it to the short list. Yeah. That's a good sign already. So, yeah. okay, here's hoping we're getting to number four. Number four. four. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this one because it's, it's probably the last film on my list that I think is truly popcorn. Like okay. in every way. Because you do have a couple of popcorn. There's some popcorn flicks yeah. on here. Um, again, like cinema is for me is such an experience where like if I can have fun, if I can enjoy myself, that's yeah. the most important thing. Um, and as long as you feel something. Yeah. And the way that the Russo brothers accomplished Avengers Endgame. Yeah. It's just magnificent. Like the way that they constructed something that comes to a conclusion of 22 film story and do it in a way that is a real hard-hitting film that presents characters. You know, my, my big criticism of like the predecessor, Infinity War, so you got like 35 characters. Each yeah. gets like two minutes of screen time. Which is, so like yeah. it doesn't develop their characters at all, which again, coming off of previous films, you don't need for the most part, but it's a collection of like very intense sequences. Avengers Endgame gets to take these core characters that we've grown with for 10 years, and each one of them enters the film at one stage and leaves the film at another. And that's such a, a tremendously difficult thing to accomplish. We can talk to all, all day long about, you know, about how, you know, these kinds of things aren't cinema, but I would say if you can enter with a character that goes on a journey and a lot of them do in this film, I think that's a pretty special thing. And being able to do that in the guise of a popcorn film, you know, and present yeah. a lot of layers to it is really cool. So this is a film for me that, I'm surprised it's in my top 15, but I keep returning to it. Um, and I think it's just like an accomplishment on a purely cinematic level. It's the buildup we're anticipating this since 2008. Mm -hmm. And 
definitely got the payoff. There's t- definitely, when we talk movies, it's always about transitions. There's hardly ever characters stagnate. Mm-hmm. And so when you went to see Endgame, you want to know where we're going to change from a new group of Avengers coming in. And this is definitely the marker, right? We're going to the next phase eventually. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to transition? We got the ending that's a little surprising for some people. Um, ending that I think needed to have, have yeah, to happen. Yeah, I was less surprised with elements of the, the way the film played out at the end. Yeah. But it was done in a satisfying way, which yeah. is tough to do when you have a major studio behind you pushing you in this one direction. The fact that they took time for character moments is pretty cool. Yeah, and there's, um, there's some happy surprises in yeah. there. Yeah, and I think it's been more important to me that Avengers Endgame uh, crossed the finish line as well as it did after seeing one of my favorite franchises have a struggle to get across that finish line with Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. And again, right. I really enjoyed The Rise of Skywalker. Um, had a lot of fun with it, but it's definitely got problems up the wazoo. Right. Um, uh, obviously, Marvel had an outline of where they wanted to go. You could see that through the movies. Yeah. And Star Wars didn't really, you know, they're cutting through the hedges of they're navigating how to want where, where yeah, they want to go. They're going through an asteroid field. <laughs> yeah, they're going through um, the asteroid field. But um, I do like it. I did like it. I was a little bit surprised. You know, because it was just, it's a popcorn flick, but it has some wonderful, wonderful it touches It hits you, to it. though, you know, yeah. and, it, and it's got some really special surprises to it. It's a film that is not made. I've heard from people that have said they haven't seen a lot of the Marvel films and they enjoyed it, but it really is at its peak when you have been along for the journey. You know, yeah. it's like if you skip to the last page of the book, you'll know how it ends, but it doesn't feel as special. And especially coming from me, I, I was very critical of the first Iron Man film. I don't think it's as great as a lot of people do. To see the through line of the them as a of Kevin Feige as a storytelling machine, yeah, um, and come to a film that's so satisfying on multiple levels is pretty pretty special. It makes you forget about some of the flaws. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some. You there can, are you some. Can you can the tell me you have it, yeah. some flaws, but it's all about you know can it be enjoyed? And I think this is one that just really works. Uh, number four for me. I just saw it last week. I really enjoyed it. I'm surprised. I've, I've it's gotten wonderful reviews. I was like, let me check it out. Um, number f- uh, three on my list. Number four. four. We got number four. Four. Yep. Number four. <laughs> uh, Little Women by mm. Greta Gerwig. Fantastic. Um, to take a movie that you know it's daring. What do you? We've done this movie how many times? Too over many and over times. and over <laughs> and over again. Um, and then you're gonna shoot in the stratosphere. I like how they project this movie uh production top-notch costuming top everything um and a little bit of new flavor to this um greta's can project uh, that we 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 get the linear story when we watch this series little women from beginning to end Mm -hmm. and here she breaks it up we start off in paris rather than you know of them doing Mm -hmm. the plays in the attic um we get a little more development with amy with florence Pugh, and i think she outshines a little bit and she'll probably get a supporting nomination for this uh for the film has the ending that's a little modern for people but i like the ending i think it's one ending that she probably struggled to but it fits for this movie Mm. i really enjoy that little women so this is also i'm seeing it this week with uncut gems i think i'm gonna do a double form okay um for me what makes me excited about seeing the film is Greta Gerwig. I am such a huge fan of Lady Bird. 
because yeah. Lady Bird surprised the heck out of me. It did a lot. I of saw people. it because yeah. I was like, I've got time. It's got a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, so I feel like I'll at least <laughs> like the movie. The way they dealt with mother daughter or even just parent child relationships in that film was just yeah. jaw droppingly good. Um, can I just say this though? There have been so many people critics people that are getting paid to see movies that have avoided seeing little women because they don't think it's for them you yeah. my friend are not a little woman no you yeah. are no i'm a straight a 40 year old dude and i i appreciate it was wonderfully crafted wonderfully crafted and movie. i think that just speaks to the layers of the film and how it can be accessible on multiple fronts if yeah. you are a person who thinks i'm not going to see little women because it's not made for me you're wrong um, and I say that as a guy who hasn't seen it, as a guy who is going to go see the movie. No, and I think I'm people so are tired of it. They're like another one. There's like yeah. a PBS miniseries about it. If there's one thing that's faulting the film, it's that it's called Little Women and it's based on Little Women because, again, like we just had one last year on Lifetime. We just had a miniseries. We just we've had so many versions of this. And to be honest, I don't like the book. I'm not a fan of the book. I've read it twice and it's never done it for me. Yeah. So that's maybe the only problem going into it is the the actual source material and the fact that it's been manipulated and made so many times. Right. Um, and this is, I've seen three different versions of this movie. This is my favorite version. Good, good. That makes yeah. me excited. This is my um, favorite version. I love the costuming of it. I love the acting in it, the set design. Um, I love how it's written, how it's broken up because we've seen it before. What are you going to do new, right? You mm -hmm. need to do something new. It's an old story. And I like the audacity of Greta picking something that we've all seen before and really hit a home run with it. Yeah, which is great because, again, like when I was such a fan of Little Ladybird, and then I heard that she was doing Little Women next, I, I remember audibly saying, oh, Greta, no. <laughs> like, because I just didn't, I didn't have any interest in that source material. So it's yeah. it's very refreshing to hear that um, again, this is what happens when you bring in new voices, you yeah. know, when you add new people to the conversation, she's, she's an actress who could have just been pushed into the, you're an actress bubble, you stay there, but she didn't. And she had a voice and she's crafted now one film that I'm very much in love with one film that you're clearly very much in love with. Yeah. And that's, that's phenomenal to hear. Like yeah. we need more voices so that we get more films. And that's why, remember when we said at the beginning of the, the show today, that there was more films that we connected to this year than in a lot yes. of other years. Yeah. It's because of the voices and because people like her get, get into it. So yeah. that's awesome. It's cool. It's nice to see Chris Cooper back too. Always good to see Chris Cooper. <laughs> okay. We're getting there. So I'm blessed in my number three that I am of a very few people that has seen this movie. Um, wow. Because okay. it only opened in New York and LA on Christmas and it will be opening wide in January. But it's a 2018 film, darn it, or 2019 film, and I'm ready to talk about it. Right, and cool. that is 1917 from Sam Mendes. You got to see it on our press release. I got to see it on press release. I, I was really trying to get to a second one because I wanted to go see it again. I know that's maybe selfish of me, deal with it. But yeah. uh, wow, what an. What a, a way to change the game in terms of war filmmaking. Yeah. Um, constructed to look like one shot or at least as few shots as possible. Um, it, it likens and harkens back to like a film like Birdman from a few years ago who also yeah. tried to do the, you know, single shot. I absolutely love film. Birdman. I know yeah. it gets a lot of you know pushback. It gets a lot of pushback because it was in a very heated year for the Oscars. Yeah. And, and I think the, everybody the, wanted their film to get in. And I think the drumming gets an edge. The drumming throughout. The, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's, you know, there's some drumming in 1917 too. Uh, but you look at the trailers and you look at what they're doing. Well, then that's the, the problem. Trailers. The trailer is that like the trailer is great, but it can't present you with, 
what the film is like they just they can't tell you what that film is in one trailer you need to experience it and i, I gotta say this experience it in a theater people because it really does matter to see this i am going theater. in a couple weeks to see it in um, imax it's it, a, you know it's about one guy who's who's tasked with him and a, a fellow soldier they're told you have um you have precious hours you have less than 24 hours to deliver a message that an army is going into an ambush and this ambush will kill 1600 men including your brother like ouch like that is that is such a tough thing to give to a you know a, a smaller member of you know this army that's going yeah. to go into battle and he's got to go on this journey with his friend and it tests them both personally um the experience of being in and not being able to pause there's no pause you know so like everything that's happening is the direct result of what happens before it there's some great set pieces in the whole film uh, Roger Deakins, the Deke. I mean, just we call I mean, him the, yeah. We we talked about this with you know his his most recent win, uh, with you know Runner. for Blade Runner twenty forty nine, yeah. and how like he he took the win and he said, you know what I'm gonna do next? I'm gonna do something tougher. Like, what a tremendous <laughs> way that you can have a filmmaker yeah. who, or a, a cinematographer who's like, I'm gonna just keep pushing myself. He could take the win and walk away. You know, and, and just do good work the rest of his career. Yeah. He's not gonna though. He he does something that I think is even more impressive than Blade Runner's cinematography, um, by working alongside Sam Mendes. And I think Sam Mendes should be in the conversation for one of the best directors of the year because the amount of planning that has to go through. If you're in a film like like, you know, Birdman or or let's talk about, you know, a film like Rope, where yeah. they, they use this technique, but they use it in a way where it's, you know, very you know singular locations as few as you can like really taking advantage of what you can do with it to do this with explosions and gun battle and lighting that has to go perfectly it's really tough to do and it just works so a lot of the uh, it's been uh presented on uh, the internet of behind the scenes work and all that stuff uh, the conversations is, um it's nice that they got that out of the way before the masses can see this movie. Mm -hmm. But if you see the trailers, you can see what they're doing, and it's far impressive. I mean, we've known about they're, they're making this movie. They made it in the entire month of April, mm -hmm. and it took them. What they did in a month of just shooting one month is just fantastic. Yeah, even in the trailer. That's proof that the planning had to be just perfect. It had yeah. to be pitch perfect planning because if you didn't, this movie could take forever and still not come out right. And you I know. think Sam has familiar with working big budget productions, but he's 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 got a veteran cinematographer that's been in the business longer than he has, mm -hmm. and let him have a have the go at it and tell. I'm sure Richard Deakins has had much more negotiation, even though he's not he's a cinematographer, of what he wanted to do with this movie. I'm sure yeah. the collaboration has been there, and you yeah. got it. You got to see bits of Mendez's time on the James Bond franchise with this movie. You 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 can see how right. planning. And working with these set pieces allows him to do this. This yeah. movie doesn't happen without his time on the James Bond movies. I so was just if you didn't say like that. Spectre, yeah. deal with it because he made this movie now. <laughs> right. And I think Sam has a great, extraordinary knowledge of cinema. Mm -hmm. And him collaborating with Richard, it looks like it's just going to be fantastic. And yep. Once everybody gets to see it. Yep. So go, go as early as you can. See it with as many people as you can. Um, this movie should ha should get more love than I'm worried it might not get um, opening in January. So definitely support this one because this is a really special movie. Uh, number three was on my list was Jojo Rabbit. So we're mm -hmm. going to move right along with uh, what is your number two? My number two um, is a film I heard about the entire year and I just had to fight to get to a, some form of screening to it. And I was lucky enough that I was able to find one. And that is The Farewell. 
uh, oh, yeah. Lulu Wong's film about about family. Uh, Aquafina gives a, an incredibly emotional, subtle at times performance. Um, but the the woman who plays her grandmother, I, I hope I get the name right, Shuzen, Shuzen Zhao, uh, who plays the grandmother, um, does not have a lot of credits to her name. I think this is her first uh, you know, big film. She's mostly done a lot of television work, um, smaller stuff. And she just owns the screen as this grandmother character. She is the grandmother that we all have. Like, and, and that's really tough to do because people are different, but she, she really owns that, that relationship piece. This is a movie for me that, uh, you know, it hit me in kind of a more personal place. I lost my grandmother last year, early on in the year. And it's, it has stuck with me because she was my last grandparent. Um, that was still around and and so now you know they were gone and I think looking into again culture clash like we've talked about with several other films this year um, seeing how another culture deals with death with passing um, and how they choose to hide it behind the guise of a perhaps fake perhaps real wedding um, just so that everyone in the family can get one more chance to go home and say goodbye to their grandmother without her knowing about it what a weird idea. And when I heard about this, I was like, that's, again, insane. Like, this is another one of those risk movies that a great voice is able to control. It's one of those, we've seen this many times before, like, in, um, where we're going to have joy, where underneath it's really sadness Yeah, going about. And it's been played on many different movies before. Yep. But the projection of let's have a wedding, let's have jubilation, let's have fun, let's have a celebration, rather than having a dreadful funeral mm-hmm. and know what's about to happen. Um, I really liked it. It's a quiet movie. Mm-hmm. You talk about 1917. That's a boisterous, big bombastic, big bombastic <laughs> movie. And if you're going to go to see the farewell, you have to understand this is this is a soft, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to get the bombastic and everything like that. And it might steer people away, f- you know, who wanted the popcorn flick and the entertainment. Yeah. This is not. This is not it. This is a really a deep investigation about family structure. Yeah, and it's it's powerful in that it doesn't try to be bigger or more than it is. You I know, agree. and I think yeah. the, this central argument: do we tell her? Do we not tell her? Is the central argument of the film? It doesn't go away. Like it's it's not something where people accept it and move on. You see that Aquafina's character learns about this, and she's like, "Well, that's really weird. We should tell her." Then you see her father who says, "That's not right. We can't." But then you see them both blur the lines, where they both come to moments where they're about to tell her. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and do we like yes. can like should we? And Aquafina, you know, gets her opportunity to learn more about her own culture um, and really grow with the, the the story. It's it's incredibly moving in that it's again like something I've never seen before. But then you know you see the film and you're like, how is this not made years ago? You yeah, know, how is this like piece of the culture not presented more? Um, it's it's just truly powerful. And the last ten minutes, man, I why yeah. why did Kleenex not invest in the film? Like, <laughs> give it the budget. Um, but it has it has me. the right amount of comedy. It's not just dread. It's not there's not a dread to yeah, it. Yeah. Well, movie. as you said, like s- sad comedy in like yeah. the same way like we said things like Jojo Rabbit, like we said things like like some of the more comedic, very few comedic moments in Joker where like it's, it's there, you know, like there's comedy, but you feel kind of weird laughing at it. Yeah. But then like this film really presents you with moments where you can laugh out loud at, at your own sadness. It's, I like how it's packaged. It's mm-hmm. a nice, soft, small little film. Yep. I think if they went big production, big promotion, it wouldn't work. But if it's sold as a nice 
send off. And I would like to see what else they would, you know, Aquafina definitely probably would do some more movies. Yeah, she's been ex- she's been exploding in a lot of ways in the past couple of years. I know last year she had Ocean's 8 and she had Crazy Rich Asians. And this year, um, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. And I yeah. think she had a few voice work performances that I'm, I'm missing. But I, I want to see more of her. I want to see her continue to evolve because she's a lot more than just the comedy that we would think of her and i think this one came out just a little too soon for any kind of accolades but it, it definitely get you know yeah i think we'll see i think we'll see a best picture nom for it so? i really do okay. but i don't think it's going to clinch anything no i think yeah i think it's it's sold as what it's sold as mm-hmm. works for it yeah this and, is a film that's been floating through the year and i think people are discovering it every single month and i i think it'll clinch a few noms again i don't think it's going to walk away with anything Number two on my list um, is Marriage Story with mm. Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, directed and written by Noam Baumbach, uh, who's done the Merowitz story. If you mm-hmm. like that, uh, you go back and, you know, or Greenberg, um, you know, even Merowitz story with Adam Sandler. Mm-hmm. I think that was, shows his... I forgot his about cap- that one. Yeah, when but it shows drama, his capabilities. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, even before you see Uncut Gems, you can see what he's capable of with good script is mm-hmm. with uh, Merowitz story. But Mar- uh, with Mar- uh, with Marriage Story, uh, fantastic. I think it's everybody assumes this is a modern version of Kramer versus Kramer, mm. but you're you're dealing with a lot of current. It's a grown up movie. <laughs> trying to, yeah, but I I liked how it played out. That it's hard. a lot of people said when they watched it they felt numb because a lot of things they could relate to it's very relatable to what happened in this movie yeah 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 talk about joyless um really like <laughs> it's it's something like yeah noah Bombach makes again like just like with taika and just like a lot of other filmmakers we've talked about yeah. makes films that are his films like there are no one else's and no one else can do them like him yeah. um but he projects it like sometimes, you know, the character can be the hero on the scene and be the bad guy in the scene. And mm-hmm. he does that very well, even with the, the Merowith story where the, yeah. the, the Dustin Hoffman shines and he's a great. And then the next scene, he's a pain in the ass. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think basing marriage story on his own divorce and his own separation yeah. um, makes it a personal story. But he also seems to respect that it is a real story. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's 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 a tough thing to do when it's something you've experienced. And I think we tend to find films that are made as autobiographical in some nature tend not to work because the person, <laughs> the person's just in their own head. Yeah. And, and sometimes they try to make themselves feel like the hero, or maybe they try to make themselves feel like the villain. And it's important to know that in, in a situation such as this, there's no heroes, there's no villains. There's just, yeah. it, it's a sticky web and right. we're just trying to crawl out of it before the spider gets us. You know? And I think a lot of times we see movies and the hero comes in and saves the day and it's slice and dice and everything. And here is a kind of a formula of what really is kind of life is like, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's had a breakup. Yeah. Know? It's not even a divorce and everything, but it shows you how it escalates mm-hmm. even of something, you know, we just have a mutual breakup and then all of a sudden it gets gosh dangly worse than everything and then you have a kind of a like a resolve so you you go in this up and down journey with the two characters yeah um i like how everybody's supporting role even though they look like they're harsh or brutal actually underneath might be soft i like ray Loyota as the lawyer but mm-hmm. he's being a lawyer what all lawyers are i think if there's one yeah. lesson in the film it's that lawyers still suck right? <laughs> <laughs> but um and then you know even eldon alda who mm-hmm. looks like a nice lawyer but he's inadequate you know yeah <laughs> but he's a nice guy but there's some things about everybody that are flaw that the flaws are ported but also 
their emphasis are put out to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely, you know, you told me, uh, you said to me, when you watch it, you're going to have to go and watch something fun afterwards. Yes. And I think that's fair. You know, like that's, that's a very fair assessment for it. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we're, we're talking a lot about the Netflix films that are getting a lot of attention at the Oscars and stuff. Yeah. And it's funny that they're pushing all their money towards the less fun films that they've released. Like <laughs> not, not to fault them or anything, but they're pushing towards marriage story. They're pushing towards the yeah. Irishman. They're kind of forgetting about Dolomite is my name. They're kind of forgetting about Klaus. Um, you know, some of their, you know, more lighthearted fair, you know, yeah. they're ones that are, you know, kind of like crowd pleasing. Uh, and I think that's where Netflix seems to do their best work is when they make films that you wouldn't necessarily go to the theater to see. Yes. You know, I'll, I'll go see anything, but I think if you, if you got to know your audience and I think sending people to marriage story, at the theater, people go to the theater for something that's, that's not really going to hurt them in that way. You yeah. know, I think it's a hard, it's, it's, it's a, a very it's, tough a, watch. it's a hard investment for people to go see a movie. That's not going to be the feel good movie of the year. Yep. You can't sell popcorn that way. So. No, no. Right. <laughs> okay. We're, we're finally reached it. Uh, yep. number one, we, we talked about number one here. Um, did. But I want to talk about it a little bit more. And that's Go ahead. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That um, is your favorite movie. That is my favorite movie of the year. And I will I will admit that I don't know if it's the best film of the year, but it's the one that I made that I made the choice to put on my list this year because I am just in love with the feeling. And I'm a, I'm a Tarantino diehard. Like this movie was made for me before yeah. I even sat down and watched it. Um, but I think this film, much like Midsommar, had a rough time with the marketing. And I don't mean in terms of trailers. I mean in terms of selling the film as a Manson family film. Right. It's not. Yeah. No. And if you go looking to see a Manson family movie, that is not what you will find here. Um, because the film is, again, about this central relationship and about these two yeah. people. And I, what I love about it is watching it the second time and the third time, you notice that Brad Pitt is always the stuntman. He is always Cliff Booth is the the stuntman to uh, Leo DiCaprio's character. In he every is the way. barometer to what's going on. He, yeah, he's in, he interacts with everybody. He's all, the support system. You know, he's the one who takes the uh, you know gets thrown off a building if he needs to to protect. He did his a Venn buddy. diagram. Yeah, Brad would be in the middle, and yep. he uh, Clint. If Clint. you look at yeah the way that he operates, even with the film's ending, he takes a brunt. You know, he takes a lot of the brunt of the of the the pain and the anguish and he protects his buddy. And I think we should all look at Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth and say, I hope I can protect my friends the way that he does. Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah, I wanted to talk about it for a few minutes more. Go ahead. All right. That was number one. <laughs> number number one, one for me is Parasite. Saw it in theater. Uh, definitely was surprised by it. Um, but we don't when you. Bong Joon-Wall uh, definitely did Mother. If you've seen Mother, mm-hmm. we kind of know what he's about. Um, definitely there's no re- there's a end but there's no really resolution to it um, this is Parasite is projected of what we could think you know what's going on and it flips on just like in the movie Mother um, there's really no answers but there's definitely a closure to it mm-hmm. um, whereas Parasitic I don't know who's the bad guy I don't know who's the good guy but everyone's it, parasiting off each other you know <laughs> right they're siphoning out the, and you know are the, the poor family are they bad for doing what they do to survive are the rich people bad for being ignorant to what's going on to the world um, there's a lot of heavy things that he's investigating with this and it's all played out in a structure 
house and the house is a staple of where you are in life of um in fact in the house is a character itself right you're occupying more space than you really need and the mm -hmm. family moves into making a mess or you clean and everything um a lot of contrast to it a lot of complexity to a simple story and i thought the ending was not what i thought it would be mm -hmm. yeah so so Parasite, for best me movie what's for me. great about this movie um and and it's really a film of two halves i yeah but when you get a film like that that turns that becomes something different at a certain point it makes two movies you know what i mean like you come out of it going like there's the first half is a the movie there's the second half is the movie yeah. that's not the case with parasite uh bong joon hoon finds a way to turn the film from film a to film b without sacrificing anything that came with film a like it really does make that twist Right, the, the film doesn't it doesn't suffer for it. I think the twist is the flood, right? I think that's where it starts, right? Well, the, 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 yeah, the, like just the, the stormy night, you know, yeah. and they, you know this this whole winning moment. I, I it's kind of like we flushed the whole system out. Film. It's almost like we flood the whole system and we're going to restart again. Almost, yeah, the like whole a, theme of the film is that crap down. runs downstream. You know, like and. <laughs> It's it's a tough watch in some moments, but like the first half of the film is so funny and comedic and weird. And, you know, I, I heard uh, another film pundit uh, sell the film as like dirty, rotten scoundrels on acid. Like and in a lot of ways, yeah, like there's some conning to the film and, yeah. you know, just everything in the first half seems like it's so, oh, we're having fun with this weird like sequence of, of events. The last half of the film is one of the most tensest experience I've had in the yeah. theater. Um, the only reason it's not higher on my list, and I think five is pretty solid, but it's not higher on my list because I didn't respond to the ending when I first watched it. It ruminated. It, it stayed with me. I, I had to do, a, I, I did a lot more researching into the film and like really did some hard thinking about like what the ending, not, not just what the ending meant, but like what it meant to me, you know, yeah. how it really felt to me. I don't think the ending hits it as perfectly as some of the other endings we've had this year. No, but I agree. It's uh, an ending you know, that you have to learn from. And I mentioned this, uh, you know, off the air to a couple other people about the film's ending and like it's, it's final musical piece. If you translate it to English tells you how the story ends in a film that kind of leaves you a bit open at the end. Yeah, this final music yeah. piece tells you how the story ends. And if you were watching it in its native language and you spoke its native language, then you would know how it goes. Uh, so I think this is one where watch it, do your research on it. And then uh, like once you've finished experiencing it and researching it, it kind of like feels more whole to you. And it's the film this year where I probably want to show it to as many people as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. I think anybody including me would like to sit down and just write an essay of all the stuff that's in the movie i mean it's funny it's a horror movie there's class structure there's metaphorical there's a lot to digest of you know are you the inhabitants of the house the person then the maid who lived mm -hmm. there their entire life and you kick her out and it's a recharge and everything um then you have the structure of high low you know outside inside of the boy wants to be in the house even though he's outside there's a immense amount of stuff going on in this movie yeah this is a cramped suitcase that just needs to get unpacked like it there's so much to it I mean, that again you need to walk away from it for a little while even the kids are trying to find wi-fi and they find it near the toilet tells oh yeah you what tells you what he thinks or, about the internet or this <laughs> this incredibly depressing yet funny moment where the the fumigators are coming by taking out pests and he's like leave, leave the, the windows window. open it'll provide free pest control and it's like right. oh my gosh like yeah. No. And and 
what is the, the the urine fight scene? Like, there's so many weird moments in the film that describing them by themselves doesn't make any sense. Right. But you you view them in the sense that again, like Bong Joon Ho, just like what I said, makes films that only he can make the way he made them. I think he's yeah he's developed his own genre, and I love the play of the the daughter coaching the girl about art and how we just Google words and that's how we critique art and that's just how people did it yeah. with my own movies. They just Google stuff. With it. So it's like him being critical how we judge art works too mm-hmm. i thoroughly enjoyed parasite and i'm looking forward to see it again to catch stuff that i missed the first time yeah it's it's truly a just wonderfully weird experience in every possible way and and again there's no way to describe the film so all i can yeah. say is watch it watch if it's it. not available to you right now go watch it because you will you'll get something different than i did i'm sure <laughs> all right uh that's the uh that's a list of the year um we're gonna take a little break and we'll come back with a top just a little sample top 10 movies of the decade we'll be right back do you read books do you live by small bodies of water surrounded by trees and other wildlife is that geese shit if the answer to any of these questions is yes You have found a home here at the Brook Reading Podcast. Each week, I read a book while nestled in my small New Jersey apartment and gaze out the window at a brook. Then I jump online, talk about it, ask for your opinions, and bitch about something for approximately five minutes. If you would like to join this madness, check out the Brook Reading Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Radio Public app. Let's step into some animal feces together. Hey everybody, this is Kelly Reynolds and I'm the host of Boobies and Newbies, the podcast that asks novice romance readers to think outside the dick in a box. Join me for a new episode every Friday as we review romance novels with non-romance readers. From the sweet, loving, fairy tale romances of the Highlands. Who cares about up against the wall by the fruit (laughs) trees? Like, where's the dragon? Inside the belly of a dragon. To the naughty erotic threesomes with Navy Seals. Sex was a 10. I mean, you cannot get any better than this book. Come okay, on, you guys. Good. Really. We read it all. Check us out at Boobies Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Listen to previous episodes on any podcast streaming platform. You can also support Boobies and Newbies on Patreon.com for lots of bonus booby content and early episode right, releases. Who are the humans? You know? Yeah. And of course, I think it's a logical step that the more that you're losing, the more cruel that you're going to get to people, mm-hmm. right? And then you can see that, and I think Woody Harrison did a wonderful job. I like that he was bald. Yep. Showing that I how opposite I want to be of ape. Yep. Completely so hairless. You guys don't know how hairless. Um, yeah, Just have I think that such disdain that he had to be bald, right? Yep, and I think people yeah. look at kind of the villainous turns in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes for like you know some of our human characters who are darker, our ape characters who are darker. Yeah. But Woody does a really great job of coming in and creating a character that is layered with emotion, and that is a, like he is a very realistic personification of humanity when we have our backs against the wall. And I do like it that it's not a clean cut of ape versus man. There's some apes that are participating. Yeah, there's yeah. the, you know, and yeah. I think we see ourselves as very much like we're in a society that sees ourselves. If, if you're not with us, then you're against us. We're very yeah. Sith-like in that way right now, you know? There's like a clean, yeah, you're either on this side or this side. And it's not really true ever in life. And I like that play that uh, they did in the movie that sometimes these apes, and then they don't treat them very well, even no. though they're part of the humans. They get spray-painted and tagged and all that stuff. Yeah, and you can look at the layers throughout all of our history of people who murky. were forced against their own kind, you know? Yeah. 
and I like that very murky. And it's always been a, a staple of the movies Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Some work for both sides or the other. Yep. I just I think like it's the best of the entire Planet of the Apes series is this war for the Planet of the Apes. I think it just knocks it out. It was a great ending. Mm-hmm. I love that. I'm all, I guess I'm all about the ending. <laughs> Uh, number 10 for me is a movie that I didn't like the first time I saw it, and I finally got my bearings and bearings, and now it's my top 10, um, Phantom Thread. Oh. Wonderful movie, and I like it because it's not a movie just about making dresses. People think it's a movie about being an artist, of you're trapped in your own world almost, and it's played, I love the camera play of, you know, Woodcock Reynolds of, is he the bad guy? Is he the good guy? Is he just trying to function? Mm-hmm. Um, and his mind racing, constantly being creative, and the, the world around him. He's built this world, and he's been but being successful. Mm-hmm. But he needs somebody to break it for him, to go back and almost recharge, even if it hurts him. Yep. And I love that about the movie. I love that he's, you know, she can go up the stairs, and he turns like, is there a certain agenda to that or a certain gesture mm-hmm. or what are you saying to me is is that are you being mean or are you trying to help a wonderful mystery not in not essentially a mystery mm-hmm. but it's just a play on it yeah I the, the mystery is you know what within him is is causing him to be like this in a lot of ways yeah i uh i think the film feels better to me than when i watch it Exactly. Um, there's a lot more to it than than I like to agree with, um, but I also think like it's it's almost parasitic, just like you know, just like Parasite, where these two are feeding off each other yeah. in a lot of ways. It's not the central focus, but it's a central relationship. I saw the film, and I I gotta say it, for, uh, it's similar to Midsummer. It's a lot of great ingredients that I didn't think make it, made a great cake. Yeah. Um, I I should probably revisit it because I walked out of it just going, I don't get why anyone liked it um and maybe it's just that i really don't like daniel day lewis's character um i think you're not supposed to. no and i think i I just mentioned it earlier they don't have to be likable as long as they're interesting and i think he is interesting but not enough to make up for my faults with him yeah you know i just i find him so repulsive (laughs) in the film and then the reason is because he he created the world that he can be this yes and um and I always, I always question that. Is he the bad guy? Is he the good guy to this movie? Most definitely the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I get why. Yeah. I get people like it. I, I never connected with it. I just didn't. And I, I first, and I, I'm not gonna bust you with it because the first time I, I was like, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> maybe I, I gotta rewatch that one then because I think. But like, I, yeah, but I think if you're a creative person, artistic person, you'll get this understanding of. You know, people who are just so wrapped up in the, the world and so their mind is racing all the time, and then the outside stuff comes in, and you're just like, God dang it. Maybe I see too much of myself in him, and that's why I don't like him. <laughs> He's just me. I just don't like anything. I've caught myself doing that with my wife. You're interrupting me. What are you doing? We, my wife and I actually have that joke, the shining joke, where we're like, when you come into the room, you're distracting me. You're distracting me. And thank gosh we can joke about it, because I, I mean, that just means that it's clearly not a presence. All um, right. War for the Planet. Number nine. Number nine for me is from 2014. It is a film that I thought looked extremely boring before I went to see it, and I was blown away by it and its central lead performance, The Imitation Game. Um, I love the central uh, hero's journey uh, that um, Benedict Cumberbatch's character needs to take, Alan Turing, as he confronts, uh, again, like a, a near impossible math equation. How do we solve an equation that changes every day? 
I like that. And I think it is such a difficult journey to go on. Like I, my brain melts just watching how he, you know, creates the first computer, you know, and, and, right. and how to solve an equation, save lives. There's a great sequence in it. And again, I, I feel like I can talk about it a bit more in depth because it's been out for so many years. You had your chance. Um, there's a moment where they think they've actually cracked it. And, uh, yeah. but, it did. and yeah. by yeah. telling people, by, by alerting uh, their, their supervisors, they would save one ship, but potentially kill millions more by, by, not, uh, by, by allowing themselves to be discovered. Yes. And you know, one of the people in their room even has a relative on the ship that's about to get taken down and they have to tell them, no, we can't do it. Like it has so many human layers within a computerized film. And I think nothing can be seen more than that than Alan Turing's own personal story of what he's dealing with. Um, you know, like who he is as a person not being re respected in a society. It's a really tough And then he has some, really he's, he's on the spectrum and he has a little bit of yeah. social and I awkwardness think, uh, to it. Cumberbatch deals with him in a way where it's, it's not disrespectful. It's very like, no. it's very yeah. accessible through its inaccessibility. Um, it's, it's not, it's not always the easiest film to watch, but I think it really works on so many layers. It also doesn't exactly get the details right and the facts right with the story it, it, it tweaks a few things here and there and really kind of like mushes around so i'm not going to say it's like a true to form you know e true hollywood story of alan turing but it, it's, it's a definitely wonderful a journey wonderful film. it definitely is a wonderful journey mm -hmm. to be and then you see how how successful he was but how damaging mm -hmm. you know in end of his life was so so harsh yep and that one yeah. to me like the score just stays with me like when i think of that movie that score plays in my head and i think that's the mark of like a really memorable film all right, number uh, nine for me is Parasite, so we're going to move on. Oh, all right. So number eight for me, um, eight for me, uh, okay. I saw it right after I got engaged in Hawaii while waiting for my plane to be ready so we could take off. We ran out of stuff to do um, while waiting by the airport, and we went to the movie theater. We came across uh, a film I was very excited to see in The Nice Guys. Um, it's Shane Black's Shane doing Black. what Shane Black does well. You know, we talked about Tarantino doing yep. his... Oh, fantasy to Hollywood. This is Shane Black's oh, homage yeah. to Hollywood. Yeah, and Margaret Margaret Qualley appears in both films. You could almost see Nice Guys as maybe a sequel. Um, but uh, no, The Nice Guys is a cool film for me because, again, it takes what I love about Shane Black, which is that he creates really unlikable, interesting, fun people. Like, yeah. their unlikability is what makes them fun. Um, Ryan Gosling playing against type, playing a bumbling, stupid, drunk... Yeah. jerk you know for most of the film he's seeing things that aren't there he's experiencing things that are different in reality than they are no his daughter is smarter than he yeah is. i mean yeah, like yeah. you know it, the daughter yeah it reminds me of uh kind of that that you know the sherlock holmes of it all of like you know is watson really the smart one you know like sometimes you know it comes down to that uh russell crowe is uh again like he plays jerks well so i think he does really well with this but, but it's the central those... mystery is what makes yeah. it so powerful and that they're dealing with themes that you know they're dealing with protecting people at a time period uh doing inappropriate things you know like yeah it, it's just like big lebowski it's like the big sleep the the when you or the when you watch the movie the thin man who cares we really don't know we don't really care that you solved the case but how these two guys interact with each other makes it much more yeah and yeah. i've often said my favorite action movie of all time is uh lethal weapon 2 
Um, it, it, I mean, it's always going to be the Lethal Weapon films because I love that buddy cop nature of two unlikable yeah. guys who are friends. And uh, nice guys, yeah, two guys who are not friends, but they kind of have like a kinship to them. I yep. think that the relationship is so strong in that film that it just it moves through the entire thing. I don't think Shane gets much accolades for how good of a writer he is. No, and, the and last Boy Scout. A lot of these know. films are ones yeah. though that nobody saw. Like yeah. you look at a lot of the films he wrote and worked on, uh, and you know people don't go to see them. And I, that's another reason why I was really happy to have the nice guys on this list. Go see original films, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Shane was one of those great action writers, and he was, in his heyday, he was actually, but that was his coming back. Yep, he still yeah. has it. Uh, fun thing, too, though, you got to check this out. They come across a dead body at a, at a 70s, uh, like, you know, club scene at the end, or yeah. partway through the film. It's Robert Downey Jr. playing the dead body. And I didn't notice it the first time I saw <laughs> no, it, and it's no, so great. Now I can't unsee it. Okay, I'm going to have to watch it again. Yeah, check yeah. it out. Robert Downey Jr. plays a dead body in the movie. Um, always good to see. <laughs> um, because the nice guys, I think the best intro of the decade was the beginning of the other guys. Mm. That was the best, funniest intro you I mean you have the rock and you want to talk about a cop duel that I want to see a full movie I would of. love to have seen a full movie with those guys those two guys. everything they do on screen is on fire give me a movie <laughs> and then the, then, 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 you know, the whole it goes right through the Trump Tower yep. <laughs> oh, it's man, the yeah. best movie intro ever I want to see they the blew guys the whole right? budget on that <laughs> I want to see the guys we, we got the other guys yep. which are Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg but I want to see the movie the guys yep. <laughs> maybe compete with the nice guys yeah there you go <laughs> um, number eight, because it's my show and I'm going to break all the rules, I'm just going to round up all these movies together and say Yoros Lanthimos films. Oh, okay. So he did Dogtooth. He did The Favorite, uh, killing, The Killing of the Sacred Deer, and The Lobster. All of his unique style and genre. I really enjoyed all of those movies. I, I They're so weird. They're so funny. They're so cringy. Um, he's definitely has, you can make movies as long as you want, but he definitely has this unique niche that he carved into this decade coming out party. If you, they're not conventional movies. They're just, no, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to see what's going on in his brain, but there's, there's wonderful movies that he can kick out. They're just, just artistically fun and cringy at the same time. I don't know what's going on. He's one of those guys that I think he excels in making people uncomfortable. And I think yeah. he likes excelling in things that make people uncomfortable. Um, I was yeah. I was kind of iffy on The Lobster. I like half the film. I don't like the other half. Um, but for me, I do think The Favorite is a really strong... Uh, it's a really strong film that really knows how to deal with people that we don't like. And like I said, yeah. interesting people, not likable. Yeah. Um, no one in The Favorite is likable. I hate everyone in that movie. It but it is be. fun watching them manipulate and hurt each other it's you know, yeah it, it's almost uh barry linden but they're being bullies to each other um in the beginning of the, i went to see the killing of sacred deer in the theater in the beginning of that movie you just boom and you're like oh my god yep <laughs> you know, it's like, oh. yeah uh, i i you know i sat next to a person who covered their eyes like i can't believe <laughs> i think his yeah. most accessible film is is the favorite i think that's kind of like again like kind of like yeah. climax where like it's bridging that gap a bit yeah. Um, so if you've never seen one of his films, check out The Favorite. If you don't like The Favorite, I don't honestly think that that you're going like to like the other no, one. So no. like that's a good like uh, that's a good sip of the beer to let you know if you're really a fan. Um, but he do, he does things that I I think he goes against the editor. I think we should shoot this like no, let's just do it this way. Mm -hmm. So he definitely challenges himself and challenges the audience. Um, 
I really enjoy the the decade that came, he came, has come out party a whole yep. four movie. So yeah, can't see what he's gonna do next. I know it's gonna be cringy. Right. What is uh, number on your list? Here? Number seven on my list is a funny one because I, I watched about 45 minutes of it the first time I had rented it and I didn't okay. like it. And then my wife came home, uh, then dating, but then she came home from work and she said, what are you watching? Let's start it over again. And it wasn't until the <laughs> the second time I watched the 45 minutes followed by the rest of the movie that I really connected with it. All and right. it's Nebraska. Um, I with think Bruce Nebraska Durney. with Bruce Dern is so perfect for a Minnesotan. Even though, like, it's not set here. Like, it has those elements of the small town nature that I grew up with. Yeah. Um, every character in that film is a person I know. Like, I have, I have just seen stubborn. all of them. Yeah. yeah and just, and, and kind of the way they work with the family. Bruce Stern's character believes he's won, I think it's a million dollars. Um, and he's going to collect his money. And no one else, you know, certain people don't believe him. But then he gets to the small town where everyone believes him. And they're all wondering when they're going to get a little stake of that money. Yeah. And it's, it's so, it's so filled with interesting characters really odd you know moments and it's it's a film that i think again like works better when you know what you're getting into i didn't know what this movie was about the first time i started watching it um but when i reintroduced it the second time uh was a really fun experience and june squib does not get enough love and she does not get enough film roles she is dynamite in nebraska and if i believe bruce didn't get nominated for i believe so yeah for nebraska and it's just one of those it's a small like farewell it's packaged small mm -hmm. and it's a small budget and i think that's what works with it yes it's, it's a small little fly the wall film that's kind of the flaw of it is it doesn't have the trappings of a big budget film which means no. that it can kind of do whatever it wants to do yeah and it takes risks but then the other problem too is that it's unseen um, so the Nebraska for me, if you are a person who grew up in a small town and you've not seen Nebraska, check it out. Um, cause really dynamite filmmaking. Uh, number uh, seven for me is of course, uh, Dunkirk mm -hmm. with, uh, Christopher Nolan. Uh, if you know me, that's probably an automatic that when I went to see it, I liked how it starts with a, just no really soft introduction. It starts with a gunshot and you're from a goal. I like the breakup. I like that. I don't know if there's a script involved. I know people are talking, but that's not the point. I like that it's not really a lot of narration or talking. It's a really a cinematic experience. Mm -hmm. I love the shot of it. And um, people kind of subtract from that. They didn't really like how it was broken up and not a lot of a talking or a lot, not really much of a story. But I love the whole journey. I like that Tom Hardy's character and how that all wrapped up for him. It's a fitting ending to the piece um, in the closure of the whole bang it up but i really did like dunkirk yeah i think dunkirk is it's it's one of the least christopher noli movies you know and christopher noli movies yeah. in a lot of ways because he does it's it's fairly straightforward what i do actually like about it more now than when i was watching it was how it is broken up into three separate stories i wasn't sure how i felt about it finishing the film the first time because it, it can get a little bit confusing in a way where like events kind of like backspace a little bit and yep. kind of go around. Um, but I think overall it works. And I think having these three stories where they're not edited chronologically, but focusing no, right. on them chronologically from the character piece is what works really well. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a dynamite piece of, of war filmmaking that, that deserves to be talked about and the way it's shot. is just so that's incredible. Like, just yeah. tense filmmaking. If you like Dunkirk, you're gonna like 1917. So they're they're both very <laughs> they're both the same, very similar uh, in like their yes you know their tight knit yeah. uh, you know kind of escape almost mission. So yeah, yeah. it was the right ending 
for that character. Yes. Yeah. Um, and again, like and Dunkirk right, for the movie, great yeah. double feature with with Darkest Hour. Like watch those movies together because right, they man, came out the same. You're right. They yeah, both they came out yeah, the same year. Dark. Both nominated for Best Picture, and they're just great together. You know, because they're two different <laughs> viewpoints on things that it's collide at the same time. Right. Yeah. Okay, I forgot about Darkest Hour. It'd be the same. Okay, number six. Number six for me. Wow. I, again, a movie that shouldn't have worked in any way, but it they pulled it off, and that's Boyhood from Richard Linklater. Shot over the course of 12 years with the same actors and the same actresses and coming back every year to shoot more scenes. Massive task. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I don't want to make a movie like that. That's no, that's not for me. You make a movie um, and then say come back six years later or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. One, and just to, to work with the people involved in the film in changing the the narrative too, because like the script was written and then every time they met up, they kind of tweaked it and guided it a bit more. Like I I can't even begin to think about how I would do that. That is so, and and the fact that it turned out again, like yeah. it could be an experiment that was like, oh, it was a neat movie. I have no interest in watching it again. I experienced my childhood again through boyhood. And it's not because I have a lot in common with the kid, um, but it's, it's just that communal experience of like the things we have to learn in life as we grow up. Yeah. Being a kid is not easy. And I think this film really like showcases that, especially because I mean, his life was still like had a lot more drama than mine did. Um, but it's just, it's such a, an amazing accomplishment of film. I have, I have to admit, I've never seen it. You never saw boyhood. I never saw boyhood. I can have to get, it's a get, long movie. I mean, yeah. life is long, um, but <laughs> I, I've gone back and re-experienced it several times, and I okay. think it holds up on multiple viewings, and it's, it's a really interesting, fascinating look at it. And I do love Richard. I mean, he's almost like a documentary style with a lot of his movies. He reminds me a lot of like the Coen brothers, where like he makes these like wacky, weird movies at times, and then he makes Kaylee. these incredibly personal pieces. And yeah. I think Boyhood is more in that personal piece thing. I mean, his, his daughter is, is in the movie playing the main character's sister and so he gets to film her like and i think uh you know you get that your parents patricia arquette and ethan hawk are just amazing and the fact that they kept coming back and just continually i mean she won an oscar for her performance for working I for know, 12 I years know, and i missed it i missed it yeah <laughs> so, i would definitely have check to it out. check it out if it's on your list they asked uh, i definitely like to check it out uh number six for me is from uh last year my favorite movie cold war mm -hmm. uh, a lot it, it's a it takes a lot to get going yeah, uh, but I think Poland. it's worth it. It, you it, know? it does, and then you watch the first ten minutes of like, where, where's this? It, it, you know, but I think most like um, a lot of movies, the beginning is what's we about the the people who really want to see this. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not, if you tuned out, then you're gonna miss a lot. And then after the first act, it is phenomenal. It poaches in it. Um, I love the black and white. I love the play with the mirrors. I love that it's a memory almost, a fragmented memory of things cut in. It's almost like I remember that time. So there's really no clear, smooth transition. It's almost like slices all mm -hmm. together. Um, it's a movie definitely I love. I love from the beginning to end. There's a lounge scene where she plays in the lounge and one of the best shots movies of the decade yeah. um, with the mirrors and it's black and white and it is captured. It is the lighting is perfect and it, it the camera moves and it just you can just feel it the atmosphere i love cold war when i got to see it and i saw it in the theater and i recommend people see find it find it in the biggest screen if you really love cinematography and you know, the stories as i was a mushy love story you're gonna love this movie mm -hmm. and you can find cold war actually in the criterion collection they did a really spectacular home video it? version of the film that is just flawless looking yeah. um this is a movie that cinematography on it is amazing yeah. um and i think it did what's get nominated but it just yeah, yeah yeah i think the the 
best thing about Cold War is, like you mentioned, like it's a memory. It doesn't, it doesn't work until the end of the movie, and then at the end of the movie, you realize where this yeah. whole story has been. It's very you know, well book right? yeah. yeah, it's a bunch of memories. It's a bunch of moments, and then at the end, you're like, oh, like it really hits you in a, a special way. Um, yeah, very a very special movie that just did not. And it, you know, foreign films just don't don't hit that that mega appeal that they should, um, especially yeah. truly great ones. And I think this was a truly great one. So, yeah, if you get the chance, check out the Criterion edition for that Cold War, though. It is yes. it is quite something. I, All right, we're getting down to it. Number five. Number for five Kyle. was also from last year, and it's really? a movie that uh, it was my first movie seeing with my AMC A list. So maybe <laughs> I was holding a little bit of excitement there. And that's Black Klansman. I think I Black it. Klansman is Spike Lee's best movie. I'm going to say it. I think it is his best movie. Um, uh, he, he gets all the accolades for Do the Right Thing, and he got shunned, and he did a documentary about the church bombings. Yep. Uh, but this one, really, he put, he, he threw everything out works there. works so well in the movie. And again, it's yeah. all stuff, if you told me how it was going to be done, it's, it's a larger-than-life story. I mean, who would have thought a, a black man going undercover in the KKK? Yeah. That's, it sounds almost like you're setting yourself up for a comedy, and then you realize this is a true story. No, it's one of those things where you're laughing like, I think this really did happen in Colorado. Yeah. yeah. And it's just the way it envelops itself and unfolds. Um, there are moments where he mines comedy where he can because he knows that the story is going to be so dark and dreary and difficult to do. you got to mind the comedy when you and can. If I remember, um, Jordan Peele was going to do this movie. He just didn't have the time. He didn't have he, the time. And he, he also, I think it was something like he didn't feel like he could do it. The way he, I think the this way is the right thing. To. I think Spike Lee is the perfect yeah, person. Yeah, I think Spike. I think Jordan Peele did the right thing and got and shit, give it to Spike, Spike Lee. Lee. Um, but Spike did something truly amazing with the story, in that he told a larger than life piece. He mined comedy where he could to keep again like the the experience lighter than it was. Yeah. But then he also tied it to today. He used real like dialogue, real phrasing from today's events dealing no, with race, just, and right. tied them into the film. Um, there are, you know, there are moments in that film where he talks about things that are happening today back then to remind you that things have not changed as much as we'd like to believe. Right. And the way it ends, I don't know if my jaw has been more on the floor than it has been in that movie at the end of that film. I literally was like, I had to clean like the popcorn off my jaw because it hit the floor. Um, and I could not, I could not expect how it was going to pull that off. No, because you go, you go on this journey and you watch the movie and it's all like, okay, we're just going to hear about this movie, but it's a semi-biography, it happened in real life, it's it's a, a narrative, and then at the end it just boom, 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 you're like, whoa. Yep. Yeah, and it's perfect fitting for yeah. what we're establishing that, you know, we go through all this and it's funny, mm-hmm. and we can laugh about it, but have we really even changed at all? Yep. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably the most painful thing about the movie. So, uh, uh, Toby uh, Toby Hooper is Toby McGuire plays uh, uh, Toby Hooper. No, uh, he plays the Ku Klux Klan leader. Yes. Yeah, and it's. I mean, again, just like yeah. with JoJo, yeah. I don't know how you pulled funny moments out of that. Right, but uh, but he's just you know. he's but it would work if he knew he was in on the joke. He he's playing like he's tried. He's deadpan. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think, gosh, I mean, I I wouldn't have wanted to play that. That uh, Toe for Grace, that's our name. Yeah, Toe for Grace. Uh, Toe for Grace, not Toby. Yeah, yeah. I was Toe thinking Toby McGuire. Um, yeah, Toe for Grace knocks out of the park there. It's just fantastic. Yeah, I know, and Adam Driver really showed that he can be in a movie. Yep. Yeah. Um, number five for me it was Ron Howard directed a movie based on real life, also with uh, Chris Hemsworth. Uh, Rush. Very Race. beginning of the decade, yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> didn't get 
anything. It was completely ignored. I thought it was one of the best movies, and I bought it, and I told everybody. And if you like Ford versus Ferrari, you will love Rush. And I think it's actually a better movie than Ford versus Ferrari. I think Rush is there's some elements of it to you know of set in reality. Uh, Formula One racing, but I actually love the pacing, the music, the acting. I don't know why it got ignored. I really do like it. Yeah, that is. It is weird that it got ignored, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, when you said Ron Howard, I almost disconnected it from Rush because it doesn't feel like a Ron Howard movie to me. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I, I would at least put it on the same level as Ford v Ferrari. Maybe it is better. I've only seen each film one time, and it's been a long time since Rush. But wow, yeah, uh, Hemsworth showing that he can do more than just the. God of yeah. Thunder. And they're real people. Uh, this is a real, real event. It really did happen. Yeah. I think uh, there's some surprises in the story for people who don't know the story. I yeah. think that's where it really surprised me was I, was I did not know this story. And I've told you before, as much as I'm not a car guy, I'm definitely a racing movie guy. Uh, <laughs> this one, someone drug me to it. And I was like, I don't want to see this movie. Don't make me. And this was back when I wasn't seeing a lot of, a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I was spending good money that I didn't have to see a movie that I didn't want to see. I was so surprised very good movie yeah yeah all right so i think oh my gosh is this my only horror film on the list i think there's only one you only um, have one yeah for somebody who loves i'm i'm surprised okay so uh for me this is one where i actually put the first film on this list in this okay. place and then i swapped it out for the second film because i think the second film is an improvement even on the first that's the conjuring part two um Fascinating. This is a movie that has... And you spoke about it before. Yep, it's the most important horror movie, I think, of the decade in terms of where it's going to change the horror landscape. Because um, The Conjuring set us down this path. Yeah. But I think The Conjuring 2 uses character in a way that is even more impressive than the first. And I yeah. think it really moves us in the direction of where horror can be. It showed that horror can be about real people. It can be about real, like, human stories... Um, I love that James Wan takes a moment to give Patrick Wilson a guitar and let him play Elvis, like as a moment of like levity to really emotionally connect you to the characters involved. I think the story and the way that they layer um, what's going on in England with what's going on in America and how it just it, it works on every level. And it's not a horror film too about a haunting so much as it's a horror film about yeah, right. is this real? You know, like they really have to go across is this girl faking her possession haunting yes and yes. it does that in a way a that's really yeah. interesting and works so well and the fact that the movie went back and did heavy reshoots and heavy restructuring and turned out as good as it did shocking and i think it's changed the way that we're going to look at horror um going into the 2020s the whole franchise of conjuring yeah the, just the every film there is just um, moved God, I, I really did like annabelle creation yeah it didn't have to be that good nope and especially <laughs> not after annabelle i wasn't expecting good i was expecting passable maybe and I, I i did i i liked uh it follows mm. um there's been great movies and of horror movies every of, year the, of yeah. this decade has had a a couple of horror movies that have like slowly pushed us in a direction of truly great horror and i think we're yeah. about to hit a like a a real top level stuff uh number four for me uh was best picture um even though it was uh not really announced right away moonlight by barry jenkins his sophomore mo uh, film uh, very poetic uh three stages of a person's uh, life as he progresses um People were like, why do we enjoy this movie? Why are you supposed to enjoy this movie? It's the quietness of it. It's the 
allegory of it mm-hmm. that everybody loves. It's the metaphors of it, and it's a it's a poet poetry emotion. And I think if you understand that as a film, if you love films and you understand that how that is portrayed, you will get why people love this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's well acted. Uh, Mashallah Allah, I think he won. He, he did. Win? That was the first of his, yeah. his two of this decade. Yeah. Um, and Mahershal is amazing. I actually saw him back on the 4400 at USA Sci-Fi show from like 15 years ago. And he is so good on that show that I was like, he's going to go places. And then he didn't for several years. And I really wanted to see him explode. And it's nice to see that he's in our, our public eye right now. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, he's great in the film. He's not in it for very much. I mean, he's probably got one of the smallest amounts of screen time for a guy who's won an award. Um, no, we're playing with the boy about taking his lunch away or yep. taking him out swimming. And What's great is that you get, you get three great performances from our lead. I mean, our leads playing the same person at three different yeah. points in his life. They're all great. Um, this is a very dip a toe in movie for me where like they spend the right amount of time on this movie. Like I think yeah. it's, it's like 90 some minutes and it, it holds perfect for 90 minutes. If you added a bunch of other stuff into it, I think you might dilute the water. You might make it a little bit yes. less, uh, less engaging than it is because you really get three slices of life. It's yeah, three it had to be films. a tight. It had to be a you tight know? movie. Yeah, and if you, if you put anything else into it, I think it just it wouldn't work as well. Everything in this movie, every shot, every scene, is meant to influence the mood, the tone, and the character. Um, this yeah. is a true character piece. Yeah, mm-hmm. I loved it. And you definitely sliced the three stages. Yeah, you could watch any third of this movie and think yeah, it's a great little short film. Um, <laughs> and then you watch them together and it's yeah. like a trilogy of a person's life. Right. Um, yeah. And each one means something different. to the And character. I think 30 years ago, you would never got this movie. Nope. Again, this is one of those voices films where like we're getting yeah. these voices now. And he, uh, you know, he proved with If Beale Street Could Talk that he can do it again. And so I, he's yeah. one of those guys I, I just want to see more again, you know? Yep. Yes, I agree. Yeah. All right. Number three for you. My film is lacking quiet for my number three. So get, get out of your quiet space for, uh, for Moonlight and let's talk about Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> Um, okay, I put this on my list and then I scratch it off. This is this for is on, me, it's the best film of 2015 for me. I think it is a orchestra of violence, an orchestra of sound and explosions. I think this is the best Mad Max movie of them all. And I think yeah. um, George Miller is way too old to be making movies like this. It had, um, it had the right scope and scale. Yes. And I think knowing that most of the film was done in camera, like as much as possible was done in camera. It's, it's just an insane piece of science fiction fantasy that, uh, again, deals with some kind of real problems, you know, problems. You know, Um, the girl opened up her door. We're not just property. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the way that they deal with, I mean, where again, people always say like, well, Mad Max isn't the star of Mad Max Fury Road. And it's like, Mad Max is never the star of his movie. It's always him yeah, seen through the, the lens of someone else. Yeah, it's always um, yeah. And so, yeah, this is a Furiosa movie. I think Charlize Theron is wonderful as the character. She plays the least um, womanly, you know, how, how you would see her to be. You know, she's got the one arm. She's bald. She's like the exact opposite of like in a lot of ways where, um, where like our current society, we view, you know, women in certain ways. And I think she is seen as like the tougher person in the room. You know, she, if I were in a room with Mad Max or Furiosa, I'd take Mad Max because at least I know that like, um, he doesn't frighten me the way she does, you know, um, almost a bad guy, just blatantly vulgar. Yep. 
um, exaggerated. I love artistries when they go exaggeration. I like that it was kind of funny that the one tree, the, the, when they get, they get stuck in the sand, the one tree in the whole universe yep. is right next to each other. That's a little bit of fun. Um, you get the rock and roll and everything. Um, definitely an opus of let's have fun. Yep, this and I, I think you can choose to view it in a lot of different ways. And I think for a two-hour-long action sequence, it yes. never stops. It is right. a barrage of plenty. Like, and Immortan yeah. Joe, great villain. Not I to mention, yeah. played by the same actor who played the villain in the first Mad Max. He played Toe Cutter. Right. But yeah. if you watch him 30 years later, he looks so yeah. much different, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I love the beginning of it because you look at him from the back looking out. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole point of the whole movie we're going to go for we're not looking back and reflecting on what was had happened before or whatever mad max movie we're looking at him looking forward and that's what we're going to do unapologetic we're just going to go forward mm -hmm. and see if he can catch up yep it's i mean it's it's phenomenal it, I, it brings a smile to my face because it's just a movie that shouldn't have you didn't have to be that good, that right? Yeah, like you didn't have to prove us wrong when we said Road Warrior was best. And what did he, before he did that, he liked Babe Part 2? He did Happy Feet, <laughs> 1 and 2. He did two dancing, singing, penguin animated films. Yeah. And then he was like, you know what? I'll do this. <laughs> Number three on my list was a, a shock to the system and uh, still is a shock to the system. It still has it etched in my brain. Uh, uh, Leos Karaks' Holy Motors. Uh, very much David Lynchian of slices of variety of putting a character in different sense. It's a movie about movies yep. in a movie. It's Fellini's eight and a half. I'm just going out there and the world is a stage and make the most of it. And it's surreal. It's uh, artistic. It's temperament. It's funny. It's awkward. It's everything. It's sci-fi all meshed into one thing about a guy whose dressing room is a driving limousine. It's, it reminds me of when you make when you make some dinner that requires you to keep stirring the pot as you add ingredients because it's it's constantly moving it's constantly stirring itself but then there's just things that are getting added that again you you don't add that to a movie you don't put this here you don't do that and it kind of consistently carries itself through it's a weird unique film and I can't describe it it's kind of like Parasite where it's like I almost can't even describe the film yeah, you should just, just watch the movie <laughs> and the beginning of the movie he's a high class guy business guy and he goes in the limo and he's like well, okay whatever and then all of a sudden you change into a homeless person and a repulsive person and then he's next to Eva Mendez and he looks hideous to her yes I love the contrast I love the, the constant moving I like the beginning that his finger is a key and he turns and opens the door to his own world his own mind of what's going on yeah um not a not a linear movie definitely no it, it definitely is from the school of lynch yeah i think you're right about yeah. that where it it's it's not a film david lynch would make but no. it's one that seems to exist in his of world, the same you know? yeah the same kind of fabric uh leo uh leos caras has got another movie come out next year called annette so mm -hmm. i don't know what anything about that he, he keeps guarded but uh, but the same thing as holy motors or not we don't know yeah, yeah. Hmm. number two we're number two for me I think this is another one of the films that is the best of this director's entire filmography and people are going to dis disagree with me about it. And I think it's okay. The Wolf of Wall Street from Martin ah, Scorsese. Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street. I think yeah. this movie did what Leo's previous film, The Great Gatsby, tried to do. It's a film about excess. It's a film about greed. It's a film about just all the things that create a bad human being. And, and I yeah. think Jordan Belfort 
played by Leo DiCaprio, is one of the greatest bad people to lead a film ever. Yeah. You know, he's just an awful human being who consistently yeah. takes from other people. He gives to himself. He's a reverse Robin Hood. And I think they say that in the film even, is that he takes from the needy and gives to himself. And the way that every single smaller character is in the film aids him in that. I like the dinner great. scene with him and Matthew McConaughey where... Oh, it's great. It's almost... And it's, it's, it's yeah. so... It's, most of it's improv that's actually something Matthew McConaughey does where he beats his chest before he does an, a big scene in a movie. He does that. And then Leo carried it through to that yeah. big scene where they're about to drop their new IP, IPO and, and he does the beating again. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and I mean, that's even in the credits is the, you know, and it's, I think it's just one of those films that it, it's almost like we talked about with documentaries where like your film zigs and you need yeah. to figure out how to like, do you stay with the zig or do you zag? And I think... Scorsese took the things that were added to the film. He was collaborative with people and he created such a unique film. He's never done a film like Wolf of Wall Street. No. Um, but it's the same kind of but temperament. But it's the same thing that he's done before in a lot of ways too. It's the same kind of temperament of, you know, the good guy gets all the indulgences, all leads up the den that he gets his consequences. Yeah. You, know, you want to see him fail. Yeah. You know, you want to see it finally crash, but you want to you be along for the journey before he does. Yeah, the bad guy gets all, you see all the fun of being a bad guy and at the end is the, come the consequences yep. in the last five minutes. And it's, it's kind of funny to me that Scorsese had kind of a rougher year in terms of what he says in public where, you know, he talked about things that are like, uh, you know, being on a theme park ride. Wolf of Wall Street is the closest thing I can think of is the reason why people like that movie is the reason why we play bloody video games. We want to get our evil tendencies out, either on film or in video games, and then we're good again. And I think, uh, yeah, it's it's just a flawless experience that I have gone back to the well for every time. Good movies always have a good bad guy, and Leo has a good bad guy in that movie that you're actually rooting for. Yep. You actually feel bad for us a little bit yeah. at the end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even though he did it to himself. Mm -hmm. so, uh, second of my uh, best of the movies, talking about bad guys, maybe are the good guys, is Whiplash. Uh, I really, I really wanted to put this on the list, and I couldn't, so I'm happy you did. <laughs> I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I could watch it again. Uh, you want to watch a movie about people being a drummer at a jazz school? think that's boring this is delivered wonderfully mm -hmm. i love the temperament i love you know he won an academy award for this jk simmons playing this character the teacher um you thoroughly enjoy this movie i like how when even in the act of the third act of when they, they break when they get out of the school environment and they go in the real world and mm -hmm. all that stuff you're like where are you gonna go with this i mean you better have some payoff and the payoff is wonderful at the end. Yep. This is one I made uh, choices. I think it was the same year that Boyhood came out. And I made a choice to see Boyhood instead of Whiplash. And I caught it after the whole Academy Awards had ended. Yeah. Um, I did. I had no interest in seeing it. I didn't. I was like, what is this movie? Why would I care about it? It's again, just like, just like, you know, a film like Rush where it just it appeals to you in a way that you that it appeals to everybody, whether or not you've ever played a music, a musical instrument before. And I think because I haven't played one and it really spoke to me about like the, the drive that people go through when they want, you know, like Phantom yeah. Thread, like the drive that we have to do things, to create, right. to be yeah. a part of it. Um, J.K. Simmons does over the top in a way only J.K. Simmons could have done because his character is over the top. He's not yeah. realistic in any sense of the, the imagination, but he plays it realistically enough that you can see elements of the people who, you know, trained you. And great characters are ones that even when you're not in the scene, you still have some impression of them being involved. Yep. You know, that's what, you know, like the um, 
a lot of other characters have done. And then if you, you're not even in the movie and you're talking about him, he still has this umbrella around the whole movie of Jake oh, yeah. Simpson's character of and the the being warm one second and being violent the next but I'm I'm doing this for your benefit but you're you know it's a wonderful play I love the contrast and I I think it's the one of the best endings of a movie oh, in yeah. a long time I want to say that is how you end a movie I don't know if I've seen a movie end where like you're you're you hit this like it ends at the top of a roller coaster and you yeah. get to glide back down and go, wow, that was fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just like I love I've a quiet worked. place ending. I loved mm -hmm. it. It ended where it needed to be. And endings are tough. I don't, I know I complain about endings being, but really I need to enjoy the ending. I love the ending yep. of this. Endings, endings can save a movie and endings can ruin a movie. It saved it. Um, and this is one where like, if the movie had ended any other way, everything else was great up until that point. Yeah. But this is where it elevates it to the level of films we put on our top 10 of the decade. Yeah. All right. Now All right. we're at it. We've, we've hours and hours. We finally reach it. Kyle, what is your number one movie of the decade? This is not going to be on anybody else's top 10 of the decade. Okay. That much I can say. All right. Uh, it is cloud Atlas from 2012. Fascinating. Um, Tom Tickwer and the Wachowski siblings, uh, their film that spans six stories across six, six separate time periods its main acting cast all portray up to six different characters Whoa. spread across uh yeah. time and what's great about it is if you look at the book for the the that it's based on it has the first half of all these stories and then it counts the stories backwards in the last half and so you the kind of yes yeah, so you kind of go forward in time and then you come back out the film jumps around between these time periods uh, yep. which can be an incredibly difficult thing to do and i think it works so well um, I think each one of the stories has things that you take with you that you that you learn from, but they're all people that have been, you know, you can guide through these characters through line like Tom Hanks's characters, you know, in the first story in the oldest story, he's not a very good person. But then you notice that in the time periods in which he interacts with Halle Berry's yeah. character, he becomes fundamentally changed. He becomes yeah. a better person. And I think it's, you know, seeing these two people that are like star crossed lovers that will never you know, when they don't interact, they're bad people. When they do interact, they're good people. Um, <laughs> That's, I didn't ever notice that before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then you get some people who, like, uh, Hugo Weaving's character, he's never a good person in any of them. Like, some no. people, you know, some see, people, they no see where the bad yep. in everything, and they, yep. they take the wrong choice every opportunity. Um, and some people can't be saved. But then you also have um, this love story between the two characters that we see in our first story, and as they and they continue to meet up in every single time period, um, I think it's it's a movie that works at its best when you love it and when you want to rewatch it over and over again. Um, when I picked up this movie after I originally had seen it in the theaters, I think I probably sat and watched it about three or four times. Okay, and I just kept going back to it. I think it's just a phenomenal look at at life. Uh, as we find a way to each other and our destinies and small little trinkets keep us connected yep the small little things keep us connected and one yeah. of the best trailers ever made it's a six and a half minute long trailer and i i could watch <laughs> that oh man i love cloud atlas it's my favorite movie of the decade <laughs> my number one is a little bit obvious get out ah. i changes i think the reason why it changes the game of horror movies mm -hmm. 
now we have an introduction. We have a new voice of what horror movies are. We have a new avenue of what horror movies are. And we have a difference between what could be a horror movie. I don't think there's a lot of horrific things in this movie. That's Yeah, that's the question is like... Is it a horror when movie? When I first watched it, I was like, I don't know if it's a horror movie. And then the second time I watched it, I said, yes, of course it is. Like, it, it yeah. blurs the lines. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's a small, like, what's going on? I love the investigation. I love the the resolution. I I like the ending of it. I I think it's a wonderful crafted not only a horror movie but a great movie. Mm-hmm. It's a fresh story. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. Even though we do see some similar things of oh this is the surface. I this is not what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Are people nice to me just because they're nice, or are they genuinely nice? And it's question authenticity. I think that's a whole movie of it. Uh, do you can you trust people? Are they being authentic to you all the time? Yep, and much much like uh, Peel's Us, uh, Get Out is at its best on multiple viewings. The funny thing about it was when I watched it the first time, I said I liked it, but I don't think I would want to watch it again. And thankfully, I bought the movie, so I had to watch it again. Um, but I went back and revisited it, and I noticed all the little hints along the way that we were not in a traditional yeah. scary story. And in that way, it it works so well. I, I've there are very few films that can layer everything together like that, where it works even if you don't get it. You know what I mean? Like right, yeah, even yeah. if you don't understand what he's really saying in the movie, it works as a pretty nice little thriller. But then when you add in like you know his own personal experiences and where he sees uh, you know race and where he sees um, these characters interacting, it works again and again and again. And I think it's just filled with a great cast too. Like we, yep. you know, we, we, Daniel Kaluuya, awesome, awesome performer. And he just had a breakout with that. And then he's consistently done good work since yeah, then. Yeah, Black Panther. Um, right. Black Panther. I liked him yeah. in Widows. Widows, he is like one of the best, like That's minimal a, screen time villains. He's unnerving. Yeah. And then Queen and Slim this year. And I, I hear he's producing a Barney movie. So maybe he'll bring some of that get out action to <laughs> Barney. So... <laughs> Well, that's our list. Um, before we go, I like to recap it. So uh, let me be the first uh, to recap my for 2019 best of 15. So number 15, uh, American Factory. Number 14, Minos. Number 13, Climax. Number 12, Transit. Number 11, Uncut Gems. Number 10, Midsummer. Number 9, Honeyland. Number 8, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number 7, The Lighthouse. Number six, The Irishman. Number five, Apollo documentary. Apollo 11 documentary. I got screwed up again. Number four, Little Women. Number three, Jojo Rabbit. Number two, Marriage Story. And number one, Parasite. Uh, what happened with yours? All right. So my, my top 15 recap? of 2019, number 15, Alita Battle Angel. Number 14, Ready or Not. Number 13, Knives Out. Number 12, Shazam. Number 11, John Wick Chapter 3. Number 10, Us. Number nine, Jojo Rabbit. Number eight, Toy Story 4. Number seven, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Number six, Rocket Man. Number five, Parasite. Number four, Avengers Endgame. Number three, 1917. Number two, The Farewell. And number one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And my top 10 lists of the uh, top 10 films of the decade number 10, Phantom Thread. Number nine, Parasite. Number eight, all of Yorgo Lanthimos films. <laughs> seven, Dunkirk. Six, Cold War. Five, Rush. Four, Moonlight. Number three, Holy Motors. Number two, Whiplash. And number one, Get Out. Perfect. My top 10 of the decade. Number 10, War for the Planet of the Apes. Number nine, The Imitation Game. Number eight, The Nice Guys. Number seven, Nebraska. Number six, Boyhood. Number five, Black Klansman. Number four, The Conjuring 2. Number three, Mad Max Fury Road. Number two, The Wolf of Wall Street. And number one, Cloud Atlas. 
That's the end of the show. Thanks for a wonderful season. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Kyle, for coming in. Thanks and for your list. Uh, you can definitely find us on um, uh, more episodes of the Kyle and Nick on Film at YouTube. Thank you once again. Um, we are out for this season. I had a wonderful time. Hopefully you enjoyed listening. Please give us a re uh, review. We, uh, we live on reviews as much on the podcast. Um, thanks again. Have a wonderful, happy new year. 2020, we're going to start uh, hopefully a n new decade of great movies yet to come. Oh, Kyle, exciting. how can they find you before you go? Uh, you can find my uh, reviews. I, I just crossed 900 posts on my uh, my website yesterday, Yay. which is pretty amazing. So you can Good find question. that on goatfilmreviews.com. Go check it out. Thanks, guys. And that is it. It is for the year. It's over. Over. <laughs> <laughs>